0: Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast. I am Brett Weinstein, your host, and I have the privilege of sitting with Sam Harris, cognitive neuroscientist and philosopher. I actually feel like although he needs no introduction, there is a thing that I wish showed up in his bio that I'm having trouble figuring out how to phrase. Something like, Sam is an important node in our collective conscious architecture. Not everybody agrees with I'll, Sam, but what I'll, he thinks I'll, matters.
1: I'll take it. I'll take it. That's all great. All right. Awesome. Yeah, I'm not sure I can apply it to myself, but I, I will take it from you. That's, that's great. I don't see why I should apply any less
0: to you than anybody else. Okay. Um, all right. So uh, thank you for doing this, Sam. I really appreciate your willingness to engage arguments that I know must feel like people run you through all the time. And at some level, maybe they should just read your books to find out what the answers to the questions that they would pose to you are. And I should say that in preparation for today, I have done a fair amount of reading of your material just to refresh my memory as to what you believe and to figure out whether or not there is indeed a gap worth discussing.
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, I I find that certainly for some of these topics conversation is much more flexible than just volleys of prose right so so email or blog post or article or book it's just it's too rigid because you really you can't interact with anyone's real time response to to what you've written there so it's you know people just bounce off the arguments more often than not so you know I'm happy to talk about it well
0: there's that i also think that the hidden magic of human nature actually involves active discussion about what we disagree over and that we have learned to think in a very different way because school trains us to function differently, but that, in essence, a podcast discussion is the resurrection of a very ancient and vitally important human form, something that might once have taken place over a campfire, now takes place somewhat more asynchronously and a lot more people can listen in. But anyway, I do think that this is in some ways the return to, to an earlier form and maybe books were a temporary detour.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We're living through the golden age of conversation in some ways. So it's uh, I'm yeah, happy to be doing it with you. Yeah. Or maybe this is the beginning of that golden
0: age and we're discovering how to do it. Yeah. One, one of the things that frustrates me about the moment that we live in is that we've settled on an almost arbitrary mode of deciding what conversations should happen and when they should happen, and that a little bit of thinking about how formally this should all go down might increase the extent to which we we reach new objectives or even things that we didn't know to pursue hmm. so uh, let me say in reading I, I in preparation for this, I read. Uh, free will i read your book lying i read a good chunk of the moral landscape and i read your wife's book on consciousness oh nice um so that gave me some kind of insights and i do have the sense that you are super unusual in the way that you think there's a way that your books almost encyclopedically explore your own thoughts on a topic so that in essence you're leading the reader through every path you've been down mm. and where it ends and so it's sort of like a status report on all of those arguments and then ultimately the book arrives at your conclusion about what all these things say together but this it raises a question for me I worry about anybody who's written a book <laughs> including myself mm. I'm writing a book with Heather at the moment and I have another one planned And there's a question about once you've written a book, unless you've gotten it 100% right, you are now in a new predicament. If it turns out that something about what you've written is what you thought at a moment, but then it turns out you end up somewhere new, there, there aren't great mechanisms for updating. And so I see a lot of people who have written themselves into a corner and... Been
1: unable to escape it, hmm. unless you've written a book about the moral evil of lying, in which case you, you, you're anchored to that. So, I, I hope I'm honest enough to declare I've realized I'm wrong on any topic uh, I've put into print. Um, I mean, the, the topic that I think we're going to touch—free will—is one where I'm. Uh, it's not a matter of sunk cost or being identified with a position. It's just uh, the. The topic is is the 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 geometry of the topic, both of our knowledge and what seems to promise to be the frontier of our ignorance uh, seems unusually clear to me, right? So it's not it, like there there are many topics where I'd be the first to admit that whatever my opinion is, it's you know it's up against a just a vast uh, region of ignorance which is yet to be illuminated. Free will is not really one of those topics, so so I'm, I'm you know I'm very, um, I have very few reasons to revisit my my published position here, but I'm, I'm happy to do it. But it's just it's one place where I'm you're, you're going to you're I'm either going to seem unusually incorrigible or or you know arrogantly overconfident or or something depending on somebody's. Uh, commitment to the opposing view. So well there's there's a question of how
0: you will seem to members of the audience, and you know, audiences are large, so you'll seem every way to somebody. Yeah, yeah. But to me you're not going to seem that way. I know there are zones where I've been so thoroughly over a landscape that it's always possible something new is going to arise, but I've I've chased every argument from every side and so I'm not really expecting to hear something new. And I, I understand that free will is a place where you feel like that's the case. Now I'm hoping to drive you into a headspace that opens something on this topic and we'll see whether that actually happens um i don't know whether that would be positive or negative from your perspective but can we detour to your book lying first sure sure so i listened to your book lying actually i listened to it on the plane and i i in particular love to listen to books where the author is reading it and in fact you you read lying so you would get to hear it Somebody, There's some emotional content in the cadences and things like that. And I wondered, as I was listening to your argument, which I overwhelmingly agree with, and I find some analogy in how you see this topic and how I see this topic that I think is not common. I don't think we're in exactly the same place, but we're in a more similar place than probably two people chosen at random would be likely to find themselves. But I wondered, if you wrote that book, which makes a very powerful argument that almost none of the places that a human being tends to see some sort of lying as justified are actually justified if you chase the full calculus of the consequences of doing so. And um, obviously, as you hinted at a couple of minutes ago, that having stated that out loud and very clearly puts you in a kind of a bind that you obviously either inadvertently chose or chose knowingly. Hmm. And I was wondering, was there any part of you when you wrote that book that was seeking to tie your own hands?
1: No. Well, let's just spell out what bind you think that is. I imagine it's that you think, because I've been so public in my admonishment around honesty that I, I can never lie in any circumstance now because I have so many people watching to see whether I'm, in, you know, whether I'm likely to do that or inclined to shade the truth. Uh, is, that, is that what you mean? That I've basically set the bar publicly that, and, and, and now I've got many people that can potentially call me to account? That's
0: the shallow end. Hmm. Um, I would say in the deep end would be, you know, in the book, you explore things like marital infidelity. And what you have effectively done in writing that book is increased the cost that would come to you if you engaged in marital infidelity and it came to light. The Mm. degree to which you would be viewed as hypocritical is beyond what most people would face,
1: and that presumably
0: decreases the likelihood of it.
1: Yeah, no, I'm not aware of that as a motive. That is a consequence of it. I mean, it's a happy consequence of it that I I feel like the the only way for me to really uh, fail is to is to not honor this deepest value, right? And uh, I'm happy for like a kind of larger expectation that I you know that, that I won't you know betray that value, and I'm, I'm happy to have. You know it's like um you know the perverse version of it is you know uh, this is this dates both of us, but you know when Gary Hart was campaigning and he invited the press to you know just you just follow me around you know and, th- and then he was he was immediately caught having an affair, um I think if you're someone who really wants to uh, adhere to a a path which at least on this point seems fairly straight. Uh, and and clearly lit um i i i i love the fact that that people expect me to be honest and and that i that i've advertised that as widely as i as i can and uh that i would be more hypocritical than most to be dishonest uh, you know that that would be and and i i think the the obverse of that coin the fact that there is so little consequence. To public dishonesty, in most walks of life, and the fact that we have a president who is the, I think even, you know, most of his fans would admit, lies more than almost any public figure that that can possibly be named, you know, in if any he country. Telling in any the time truth now, he'd be a hypocrite. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> I mean, so, and the fact that that's in in many corners not considered a bug but a feature, I mean, I think that's just that's that's on that's probably at the top of a very short list of of worst things about our public conversation at this point you know i mean and, and it and opens the door to all of the other toxic stuff about uh, our conversation I mean, I mean i think intellectual honesty is our only real error correcting mechanism you know it, it is that it is what safeguards human rationality and uh it's the only thing that promises that human conversation allows us to, to explore, you know, what, to grope towards what is true in any kind of reliable way. And, uh, you know, insofar as we have that right in science, that's one of the very good things about science and what's, that's what makes it science and not some other zone of, of, you know, human fabrication. And, uh, I think interpersonally honesty is just as important. So yeah, no, I'm happy to be on record in this way
0: yeah i I agree, and I think actually it's very wise because in some sense, honesty is not easy, and that engineering some sort of a paradigm in which it's expected of you is on the one hand limiting and mm. has to be in some sense costly, but that net the cost is probably well worth it for the benefit of you know as you point out in your book, not having to for example track lies that need to be tended right? yeah. that's a huge cost yeah. that people pay
1: yeah and it's it's just a when I, when I think about it in the context of my marriage or in, in in relationship to my daughters knowing that the other person isn't going to lie to you is such a refuge right now the, the, but again the flip side of this would be that if you ever you know if I, if I ever lied to my wife and got caught it would be an immense betrayal of a sort that you know, most other marriages might not recognize, right? Because because we have such uh, primacy around the notion that we're not going to lie to each other. Um, but having, you know, put all our chips on that, it's it really is, uh, uh, it really makes the relationship a kind of refuge that uh, I really can't imagine the alternative to.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you. And this raises a couple of uh nearby points that I think are maybe worth exploring. One of them has to do with your position, what you describe as an allergy to participating in advertising. Mm. And I have exactly the same aversion. I can't say at exactly the same level, but at some very extreme level. And so obviously I'm now starting a podcast and trying to figure out how one do, does that. And it's not an inexpensive process and there's a question about the time that goes into it and how you end up um, paying for it and advertising is one obvious route but yeah i i can't help but think that there is some hazard to one's credibility that the very reason that an advertiser will pay to put some product in you know, to have you speak as if you care about that product. Mm-hmm. The very reason that they wish to borrow your voice is that your voice has a kind of credibility that is eroded when you are involved in selling items.
1: Right, you know? yeah, well, maybe I should should clarify that. I, I don't think it need be, uh, or at least there's there are gray areas here where it's probably not worth worrying about the, the, the ethical implications because I think there are people who can advertise credibly and, in fact, it's so convergent with their brand that it's what their audience wants from them. So when I think of like my friend Tim Ferriss who has a very successful podcast, it's ad-sponsored, but Tim's thing is finding good stuff to buy, to use, to do... Um, you know, he's like a, you know, he's, I mean, he's, he's got many things at this point, but kind of core to his brand is to be able to think about himself as, and what he does as, as kind of brand management. I mean, he's a marketer, he's a brilliant marketer and, um, there's just no problem with him finding the next piece of fitness gear that he thinks is amazing and telling his audience, this is amazing because... That's, I mean, I'm his, I'm his friend and part of his audience, and I want to know what the next piece of fitness gear is that he wants to get behind, right? So, yep. um, I'm just not that kind of you know person in the world. So well, I, yeah. I agree, and I, yeah. you know,
0: I don't know if I will ultimately have to do advertising just as a practical matter, and I've certainly thought about the border where the only things that I would advertise would be things that I actually like the product, and that's mm. that's obviously costly, yep. but it, you know maybe is protective against uh sort of an ethical compromise but nonetheless i i do think the paradigm of borrowing somebody you know let me give you an example uh when west wing was on television maybe actually shortly after it went off i noticed that there was a pain reliever i can't remember if it was aspirin or what it was but i'm very sensitive for some reason i've never nailed down i'm pretty good at spotting voices that I know. I can't Mm -hmm. always peg who it is right away. It sometimes takes a half an hour of listening to figure out who the heck that is. Right, this was Donald
1: um, Sutherland or somebody?
0: It was uh, (laughs) Stockard Channing. Uh Uh-huh. And her name, you know, no identifying information was present, but the reason that she was there was clearly that subliminally people took her to be a doctor because that was her role. The president's wife was a doctor. Mm -hmm. And so to take somebody who plays a doctor on television and have their voice, you know, in very uh, secure, certain doctorly tones advising you to take a particular painkiller is more persuasive than just somebody who might have a more resonant voice. Yeah. In other words, they were borrowing credibility from a character, and presumably for almost everybody, they didn't even notice that they were listening to a doctor who they knew wasn't a doctor giving them... Medical advice that they knew wasn't medical advice, right? Um, right.
1: So anyway, yeah, I'm sure that was effective too. That's, I bet that's it was a good ploy. Yeah. So um, as long
0: as we're still in the neighborhood of uh, of lying and truth telling and that sort of thing, um, I know you got a lot of pushback on your book relative to the question of children, and there obviously there's a lot of richness to the question about whether or not one must lie to children whether it's acceptable to lie to children in a place Mm. that it wouldn't be acceptable to lie to adults or whether children are just another example where it seems like it's okay to lie to them and it really in general isn't and uh, I raise this because I find myself I don't know if you would call it lying but I find myself misleading my children constantly Mm. and you know as I did with students I do this with um, a, I resort to humor and other things, but there is a purpose behind it. I'm quite aware of the purpose. And in my kids' case, I describe it as immunizing them to the vast sea of bullshit that I know that they will encounter when they are interfacing with the world as adults directly. Mm. Do, do very... you have an example? Wow, I don't have one offhand. I'm sure I could come up with a dozen uh, given a f- couple minutes to think. But, mm. you know... W- What I will do is I will tell them fictions um, that they should be able to spot our fictions, but are dressed up as reality, and I will see, you know, if they don't catch on, I will mislead them to a greater and greater degree until they finally do catch on. Um, So anyway, I sort of have the sense that I'm training a detector in them. Now, this is not... It does not look like a parent training a child. It looks like us engaging in, you know... Uh, fun Mm -hmm. right it's sort of the same way uh in my household wordplay was a constant um you know is wordplay uh dishonest because uh it involves you know puns that you know misuse words and things surely it's not and nobody would say it is Mm. it's good natured and frankly i think it is great training but i know that i'm a uh, a coldly rational being would have to say that I am lying to my children when I mislead them. My ultimate purpose is not to mislead them; it's the opposite. But what do you think? Am I over a, a line there?
1: Well, I, I think I would need an, a clear example of this. But uh, I mean, generally speaking, you know, th- there are, uh, there's flexibility here. I mean, the intent is not to deceive uh, I mean this for, okay so let me just step back here when you're talking about children there's it's relevant that they're children right I mean children are not full moral or rational agents and we don't treat them as such right so you, there's a, a level of paternalism quite literally built into your conversation with your own kids and that's appropriate for for me navigating that, has never required that I lie to my daughters, but it does require that I uh, shape the truth in certain ways, which excludes you know, just how you know, scary and horrible human life can be, right? There's no reason for my daughter, even my oldest daughter, to know exactly how bad the Islamic State is. Right you just you know to get into details of sexual slavery and decapitation and all the rest right there's just there's no upside to it it would it would just freak her out for obvious reasons, and you know she's she's turning eleven and there's she there's there's time enough in human life to discover how bad things can get, and you know that's i don't know what I don't know where the line is I don't know if you need to be fourteen or fifteen or sixteen, but at a certain point. Uh, you know, you, you need to be treated like an adult on these topics, but the point is not at, you know, uh, a month before her 11th birthday. Um, and yet that doesn't require that I lie about anything. It just requires that I be honest with her that, you know, listen, there's stuff you don't need to know now. You don't want to know now. You don't, there's, there's video I could put on for you that you don't want to see, right? That you will feel bad having seen. So she knows that, right? And that's a totally honest communication. Um... And that suffices, right? So it's like so. She knows she knows I'm not lying to her, and she knows that that I'm not even really keeping a secret from her. I'm t- it's an open secret. A, the fact that there is a secret is not secret, and and I'm discharged. And, and clearly, all along the way, she's getting the sense that I'm on her team, right? I'm advocating for her. In relationship to a wider reality that she doesn't, she knows she doesn't understand yet, and so that's that's how I see my role there. And, and it just, I mean, there there probably are cases where it's uh, it's more covert than that, where I'm not telling her that I'm not telling her something, right? I'm just not telling her something. So if she has to take a medication that has a range of possible side effects that are you know low probability enough that I'm willing to give her the medication in the first place. I've already judged that she doesn't have to worry about, you know, seizures and death when I give her this medication, uh, so I'm not going to tell her that that's on the, you know, on the menu for for, you know, some small number of, you know, uh, you know, in, in any population, uh, because it would just serve to freak her out for, you know, to no good end, uh, and I'm not going, uh, and but and yet to fully unpack that those background facts for her and this is, you know, every drug has, a, a, you know, potential side effects, which I'm not going to tell you about would introduce a kind of a level of nocebo response that, you know, I don't want to introduce into the system. So I'm just not going to talk about it, but that's, that, that's not lying. That's just, that's just not given information that wouldn't be useful.
0: So I guess the question then you said, um, that your, your mode of editing and adjusting what you tell your daughter is it suffices was your your term what if it doesn't now your daughter is young how old is she uh
1: soon to be 11 soon to be not that young
0: Um, so in our household heather and i have a sort of core principle of parenting which has some very uncomfortable implications but the principle is the job of a parent is to um model the world that the child will uh, mature into in such a way that they are well-built to deal with it when they get there. And uh, you are as well-versed as anybody in the defects of the world that our children are going to mature into. And so if you knew that you were creating a vulnerability for your daughter because you were insulating her from one of the great tragedies of... Modernity, which is the um, the degree to which communication is saturated in fiction hmm. uh, malevolent fiction um, would you would you
1: alter your stance well I'm sure that's true on a hundred fronts, but paradoxically I don't so I mean, so to let's think how to describe this well I mean, so There are any number of misfortunes that could befall my daughters, which in the final analysis would have served, or at least would seem to have served, to give them grit, resilience, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger on some level. I mean, we just, we know this from our own experience. You know, we're all trailing experiences where we wouldn't want to do that again. We wouldn't wish it upon somebody, but it actually made us a better person, right? And yet, Knowing that doesn't make me want to engineer a series of catastrophes for my daughters, thinking that it's going to build character. Now, I think there are types of training that are effect that are, that effectively connect those dots that are you know, totally g- good to engage. I mean, something like Brazilian Jiu Jitsu or meditation retreats, or I mean, things that are stressful, but they're stressful in a context where. You're, you're, the whole point is you're, you're learning the skills to to adapt to these stresses, and, and it's it's all it's not haphazard. It's not just let's see what happens to you when we throw you off this train. It's there's there's a there's a curriculum here, and there's a path that that many people have walked before you, and um, we know something about what it's like to adapt to these stresses. So you know, as my girls get older, uh, I'll be looking for opportunities to to do something like that, but. Yeah, I, there's no question that they're sheltered in ways which, which, are an expression of, you know, my my and Annika's uh, good intentions for them. But there's the shadow side of these good intentions, which is, yeah, these are you know, virtually everyone living uh, in these contexts uh, is becoming some version of a hothouse flower that would have not performed well. You know, in some something more like the state of nature, uh, or in some conditions yet to come, right? That that perhaps are, are foreseeable. So, um, yeah, it's something I worry about as a parent. I mean, these are these are very uh, privileged childhoods that you know, I mean, just at the privilege of having a happy family. You know, have having two parents who love each other, who communicate it, who are honest, who are doing their best to uh, give you the whatever they can imagine to be the best childhood that they can give you. like There are very few people in, in human history who have been in precisely that circumstance. But the flip side of that is that to have been deprived of that circumstance in one way or another is what many people can point to as the thing that built the character and, and grit and resilience for themselves. So, um, I, I don't know how to square that circle. Yeah. I saw somebody, uh,
0: I can't remember where I encountered it. It may not have been on Twitter, but somebody tweeted at one point um, that they were hoping that their children would have just enough trauma to make them funny. Right, <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's some truth in that, I, I think. Yeah,
2: um,
0: Yeah, well, it's an interesting puzzle, and I do, I, I like the idea, you know, your point about jujitsu being a stand-in for something, and because it's ancient, the stand-in is likely to be... Um, pretty well thought out from the perspective of bootstrapping some developmental pathways that otherwise might get missed. On the other hand, there's a question about how good a match it is for a world as different as ours is from the ancestral world. Right. right. All right. So maybe it's time to, to move on to free will, which is uh, the reason I cajoled you into having this sure. conversation uh, with me. Um, so. Uh, I'm not quite sure how to start with you because I have the sense that somebody like you who's taken a position on a topic like free will has a a taxonomy in your mind of what the alternative positions are. And I don't Mm -hmm. know for sure whether my position is on the map or not, but uh, I do think it takes some... Uh, some doing to get to a place where you can see a topic that you know as well as this one from a new place, which I'd love to try. Sure. So uh, let's start this way. Have you ever been to New York? Yes, yes. You have? Many times, yeah. No, I don't think you have. I've always wanted to go, I should say, but Uh. I've never gone because of Zeno's Paradox, which has prevented me from going and clearly has prevented you equally from going. Right. But how did I get halfway to New York then? Well, that's the question. Yeah. Um, how did you get halfway to New York, yeah. and how did you get halfway there? Anyway, the the reason I raise Zeno's paradox here and your failure to get to New York mm-hmm. um, has to do with the fact that I don't think there's a
1: flaw in the argument of Zeno's paradox, but there is. What is it? Well, it's it's a it's a kind of semantic game. We, we know there's a mathematical flaw because you can sum an, in, an, an infinite series, right? So you can get to, you can land. Um, And it took mathematicians, uh, I think, some centuries to spell out what was wrong mathematically with the paradox. But it's just, it's semantically, it's a false framing of the problem. You know, it's just the idea that you can't get all the way there is um, stated as kind of a term of the of the the framing and then if you accept that term, well then you just keep cutting things in half and you, you know, lo and behold, you never arrive. But uh, you know, when an arrow leaves a bow, it doesn't go just halfway and then halfway again and halfway again, it goes as far as it goes. And sometimes that's all the way to the target. Uh, and it's, uh, I mean, there, there are other, I'm trying to think of another example uh I think there are other clean exam- th- this is a different example but there's um or a different problem philosophically but there's there are problems like this in philosophy where you you have um kind of an unspecified uh object which uh in an effort to specify its exact boundaries between existence and non-existence, you seem to run into a paradox. But it's not really a paradox; it's just the nature of of you know having a fuzzy boundary to a certain concept. So, you, like the concept of a heap, right? Like when when does a heap come into existence? If you have a you know a heap of corn kernels, you know one kernel is not a heap. Two kernels is not a heap. Three doesn't yet seem like a heap it's imp- it's impossible it seems to specify when a heap is born because you're just adding individual kernels and at a certain point you you know a million kernels is clearly a pretty big heap right so at some point you get there but it seems like there there's no boundary there to actually find and that's just the nature of the case. It's not that you can't get a heap out of adding individual kernels of corn.
0: Well, that's not that's not why I raise it. I certainly okay. agree with the fact that there's a delineation problem. My example would be as you go from a mountain to a valley, when have you transitioned from right. one to the other? And the answer is there is no point, but you certainly are more likely to find the river in the valley than on the mountaintop. So clearly they exist. So anyway, I, I accept that. And I, you know, I should also say, from my perspective, I don't believe that there are any real paradoxes, or even could be real paradoxes in the universe. Paradox is a byproduct of the absence of some factor from your knowledge space, and that, in effect,
1: uh, you can use it as an indicator. Well, well, I would doubt that. So, a paradox could also be just the fact that we don't have the right intuitions. To understand what, what is in fact the case. So our sense of what must be logically so, you know, something either is or is not a heap, right? Uh, it just may be that we live in a universe where, you know, kind of uh, that binary logic just doesn't apply. So I mean, the, a more relevant example would be, you know, the, uh, a wave particle duality for something like light. Uh, that just seems inscrutable but maybe that's the way the universe is, and the fact that it's inscrutable just needs to stop bothering us, right? But it, it can seem like a paradox. Well, I think, we're, like... I think we're saying the same thing, in effect. What
0: I would say is, you, if you're bothered by the fact that you can't define a moment at which a, uh, a pile becomes a heap or whatever whatever the mm-hmm. thing is that is transitioning from one state to another, then there's something you don't understand, which is, for example, the difference between a discrete binary and a bimodal, distribution, uh, or you don't understand something about the function of language and the breakdown when it's trying to describe things that, uh, it's ill suited to or something like that. So that is right. an absence of a kind of knowledge. And what it means to me, what I've said to my students very frequently is that paradox is like an X on a treasure map. To the extent that you have a paradox, it means there's something to be discovered, dig here. Hmm. And so anyway, that's very valuable. With respect to Zeno's paradox and its relevance here, I don't think Zeno's paradox is necessarily solved. In fact, some of the you know the my understanding of the original meaning of it was that it um, created skepticism of the possibility of motion. Is motion an illusion? Because Zeno's paradox, if you follow it to its logical conclusion, means you can't get anywhere. It's impossible. So obviously, we do go places, and Zeno himself knew that. But um, the idea that our mathematical system may be incapable of at some moment describing the process by which that happens because of something in it that is incapable of addressing the puzzle is just such an answer. So you simultaneously know the math says X and the reality says Y and reconciling them is bound to be productive. And it can be that what is missing is you know, the concept of zero was missing from uh, Greek mathematics. That's a crucial concept, and there are lots of things you can't do without it. And so something was hinting at the absence of of zero. Uh, likewise, Mondebrot's, um he didn't invent the idea, but his pursuit of fractals hmm. was necessary. The math of fractals um, that was implied by certain nonsensical mathematical paradoxes um, uh, was necessary to begin to unpack biology. There are features of biology that just don't work with standard math. And so anyway, these these paradoxes are pointing in a direction. The reason I raise this one here is that I have the sense, looking at your argument on free will, that it's pretty close to bulletproof. Um, But it's being pretty close to bulletproof is compelling if it's the only argument on the table and it's pretty close to bulletproof. And not compelling in the same way if there are arguments that are similarly compelling on the other side. In other words, I don't think that the argument, as you lay it out, is completely decisive. Mm -hmm. Now, that said, I would imagine that somebody who's explored the topic as you have hears that and you think, oh, no, I'm sitting across from another person who doesn't get the problem with free will. And you're not. Um... I would say my battle on this topic with people has been to compel them of just what a, um, what a small fraction of the public conception of free will one actually has. But the question, I think the thing that separates you and me is you believe free will is actually a non-entity. Mm. And I believe it is a dim shadow of what people would like it to be and what many people think it is, but not non-existent and that the fact of its being difficult to attain but not non-existent is actually a vital fact, Mm. one that's necessary, and one that's reflected actually in a lot of um, the things that people know about how you run your life.
1: Right. Well, so let me make a few distinctions, which I think will be useful because it's easy to lose sight of what the, the actual territory here is. So to say that free will is an illusion or is nonsensical or that we don't have it is not to say that there's no such thing as freedom or autonomy or a difference between being coerced in one circumstance or, or free to do what you want in another. I mean, those, those we have to pr- preserve those obvious differences in human life and our preferences there, and uh, I share those preferences. You know, To not be in a uh, prison camp in North Korea is a good thing, and what's bad about being forced to be there is, are all the obvious bad things about being deprived of, of freedom uh, and uh, to have no governance over your, your day-to-day existence. So um, the problem with free will is that—let's let's look at the basic claim. There's the sense the the, the libertarian—it was called in philosophy the libertarian— sense of free will which is, I would argue, people's default sense of it. Um, This is a notion, the problem with it is that it really is impossible to map on to the physics of things, whatever they are, so any, my argument is that any statement of causality, whether you're talking about a deterministic universe where effects follow from causes, Ad infinitum, uh, and uh, these causes of necessity precede anyone's conscious intent. I mean, your conscious intent is is something that that uh, is happening on the back of, you know, in our case, neurophysiology and gene transcription, and you know, on backward to the Big Bang. Um, uh, that isn't a basis for this notion of libertarian free will, but nor is any invocation of randomness into the picture. So however you add randomness, you know, quantum or otherwise to determinism, you don't get freedom, you just get, you know, the rolling of of dice, right? The freedom that people think they have is a kind of self-authorship, right? Where there's nothing over, there's nothing at their back that is fundamentally mysterious to them, that is the actual effective cause of what they think and do and want and intend, they are the the thinker and the doer and the wanter and the intender. And by they, they mean their conscious minds, right? They don't mean this oblivion at their back that is that they can't account for. They don't for, mean the sum total
0: right? of the stuff that goes on inside of their skin. They no, mean their conscious no, I, self.
1: I mean, there, there, are, there are people who pivot to that argument that it's, it's the whole person it's right. it's my unconscious mind in addition to my conscious mind but no the reason why free will seems like a durable problem for philosophy is that there's something that people feel they experience directly they feel conscious intent as being the proximate cause of that what what they voluntarily do and they feel that they are the the, the true the upstream cause mm-hmm. and um one feature of that feeling or one thing that it suggests is the sense that if you could re- rewind the movie of a person's life right to a few seconds ago or a few minutes ago or you know days or weeks or years at any one of those choice points they could have done otherwise right that it that it's meaningful to say to someone you should have done. You did X, but you should have done Y, right? And that, given another opportunity, with the universe being in precisely the state that it was, they could have done Y, right? That they're not merely robots, or, or you know, some form of uh, some concatenation of causes. Uh, you know, that is, they're just not. A, they're not a string of neurophysiological dominoes that have been falling their whole life long. They are agents that really could have done otherwise, and there's no account of causality that makes that seem anything other than illusory. I mean, again, you have to add the caveat around randomness because, yes, randomness introduces the prospect that they could have done otherwise, but it's for reasons that they can't own, right? If I told you you could have you could have married a different person that that really was within the bounds of of the you know the 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 causal properties of reality for to happen, but it could have only happened if you know we were if there was had been some someone rolling dice differently in your brain, right? If there had been a a different you know degradation of a of a radioisotope or something, um, which would have uh, led you to do something differently, and that that's not the free will anyone thinks they have. So let's let's take a couple things just off right. the table so we don't end up tripping over. Them.
0: Okay, one. Um, I don't think we can rule out at a formal level a totally deterministic universe, but I think at a practical level we can. I think it is actually completely inconsistent with any belief in Darwinism that what you have is a universe in which there was no opportunity for anything else to ever happen for its entirety from moment one. Then Darwinism is an illusion, and uh, nothing, in fact, makes any sense, including this conversation um, it's all some sort of odd theater, and maybe the thing that makes least sense of all is consciousness. That there should be an awareness taking place inside of a totally scripted mm-hmm. entity makes no sense. So, anyway, let's well, put it this way.
1: Well, let's bracket that because I mean that that I think is, uh, I think is interesting to consider whether our notion of possibility is just a fantasy. Right. Right, And as I said, you can't rule it out completely. It could be that the
0: whole thing, I mean, you know, frankly, it could be that we exist inside a deterministic computer in which somebody had a purpose in getting us to have this conversation and feel some way within it. And, you know, all sorts of things have to be left formally on the map. But I think at a practical level, A, there's no percentage in it. If this really is a totally deterministic universe, then it's hard to even know how to complete that sentence the level of pointlessness of anything other than simply doing what you deterministically have no choice but to do is what it is and so
1: let's you know but but even in a, even in that case there still is a there's a consequence to not knowing what's going to happen and there is the reality that apparent choice still plays a role in deciding what in fact happens is a that you, purely you, mechanistic one. Yeah, but you you can't just wait to see what happens because that it. is itself a choice which begets certain consequences and closes the door to other. Consequences. I have to say, inside of a completely deterministic
0: universe, I don't even know what you're talking about. What do you mean well, consequence? It's, it's it's well, well, but that's uh, it's so fully automatic.
1: Well, yes, but it, but it is in, in on some level we're at Zeno by another route because yes. in a fully, it's just a single object. Right. There, there, there are no such, there's no such thing as events. There's no such thing as causality. It's just a block universe on, on some level. Right. The and future exists as much as the past. So actually, let's
0: let's go back to Zeno because I don't think we got the value out of it. Okay. Um, in, in just setting the stage here for the discussion that I hope we'll have, um, the thing about Zeno's paradox is that actually Zeno's Xeno-style logic is recovered by some models that are taken seriously in physics. In other words, a many-worlds interpretation, for example, Mm. that posits essentially an indefinitely large number of universes that account for all of the possible trajectories. So, you know, to the extent that, you know, I drop an item and it hits one fiber of the carpet versus another fiber of the carpet, you get two universes spawned um, in order to account for everything that is downstream of that. That's, in some sense, an obvious nonsense explanation. Is it standing in for something that we can't phrase, maybe because limits of human cognition or language make it impossible to phrase? And so, you know, the paradoxes of quantum mechanics, for example, it's possible that there's some way we could construct, um, let's say it's a language barrier, there's some way we could construct language that those things wouldn't sound so outlandish, but we don't have it. And so we're constantly offering them and then stuck with the disbelief that comes along. So anyway, my my point would be, you know, you've been to New York and you know that there is a formal problem given a particular way of phrasing the process of getting to New York that you couldn't have been there. And what you're left with is the argument has a strength and the empirical fact that the argument does not apparently prevent you from getting places also carries a weight in fact it carries the dominant weight and um those two things live
1: together right except i think the the experiential the 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 experience that functions in this analogy as knowing that you've been to new york is i mean if there's a novel part to my argument against free will it's this one which is uh I'm claiming that no one actually has the experience of free will. You think you do.
0: Right. Right. Oh, and I... So I just... To take the straw man off the table, and I know you wouldn't intentionally straw man, but I do not believe um, that free will exists as people imagine it, that there is an Mm. illusion of free will that is very powerful and to which I think your argument is primarily addressed. And the problem is that... um, this obscures a different question, which is, there, is there something that would justify a, the belief in something that would rightly take the label of free will, that is hidden by a straw man version of free will that we don't even need to worry about because you and I both know it doesn't exist.
1: Well, no, we, we do need to worry about it because it is the thing that people... Are afraid to lose. Well, we don't have
0: to worry about it because you and I are on the same team in that fight. Right. The point is, by the way, you are so haunted by mechanisms that you had no hand in creating that ha- hold sway over every important decision that you're making that your sense, it is clear that your sense that you are free moment to moment to choose as you would, that sense is an illusion. But my argument, what I'm trying to put on the table, mm. is that. There is something to free will. It's a small target, but that that target, the most important thing about it, if it were just simply that there was some sort of an exception to your argument, this wouldn't be a very interesting conversation. But I think once you spot the exception, if that's what it is, Hmm. that the desire to enlarge it is overwhelming. And in fact, the irony of Sam Harris is that Many of the things that occupy your time and your thinking appear to be attempts to take the wisp of free will that we are handed Mm. and to enlarge it and have it apply to a larger fraction of your life, which I think is a completely rational response to the discovery of just what a rarefied commodity free will is. Um,
1: Right. Yeah. Well, so this could be a semantic difference between us, but let's talk about what you think that that, uh, scintilla of freedom actually is. Okay. So
0: first of all, it is utterly dependent on us not living in a deterministic universe. If we live in a deterministic universe, then I don't understand a damn thing, and it's game over for Brett. Um, Assuming we don't, and I think the physics is pretty clear, there's no reason to think we do. There's quantum uncertainty, and the fact that there is quantum uncertainty means that uncertainty can exist at higher levels through various mechanisms.
1: Well, or we live in a universe where, I mean, if you take the many worlds... Picture seriously, which again is hard to do, but you know, many physicists do at this point. Um, we live in a world where everything that can happen does, in fact, happen somewhere, right? And you don't know which one of these worlds you're in, right? So it's it's a new kind of determinism, in a way, which is like you know every every gradation of possible difference in in, the, in this. Probability space, which is this conversation between us, is spawning yet another universe in which precisely that thing is happening. You know, as as deterministically as one billiard ball hitting another, but the uncertainty is we don't know which one. We don't know whether we're in the universe where we both start speaking Mandarin right now for reasons we can't understand, or we're in the universe. I'm pretty sure we're in the universe where we're going to stay stick with English, but. Uh, whatever surprises are here are still can still be under, understood determin, deterministically in that picture. Well, I've I've never uh, regretted not speaking Mandarin more yeah. than I do yeah, right yeah. now.
0: But um, so here's the thing: I, don't, I I resent the many worlds interpretation. I'm actually not convinced that it's exactly wrong, but I am convinced that at best it is. A very stupidly explained way of phrasing something that nobody can seem to phrase so that it is not insane. And well, so,
1: it is the it is the I think on its face the hardest thing to believe that still is seemingly believed or at least uh, paid lip service by uh, a. a It might even be a majority now of of physicists. I mean, it was the last poll I heard; it was something like thirty five percent. But it's, it's 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 getting there, and it's it is the the strangest picture of reality that you could you could imagine. I, uh, yeah, I think you're being too nice.
0: Yeah. it's stupid. The idea that universes are spawned to deal with the difference between the thing yeah. I dropped hitting one carbon fiber and the next. I, sorry, yeah. that's not well, how nature works.
1: It's a it's a different uh, view of parsimony than than. I have intuitively. But it's a
0: total rejection yeah. of parsimony. It is the most. It is the opposite of
1: parsimony. Well, I th- I, actually, I, I put this to, I think it was Max Tegmark in, in a podcast I did with him. I think it was Max, um, and it was just a di- just a different view of parsimony. It was not, you know, it was kind of privileging the the mathematical parsimony over the uh, the bricks and mortar parsimony. I think that. That uh, I mean, it, it did, the many worlds it's was not well said, was not the result of adding lots of assumptions or you know epicycles or something that was jiggering a theory. It was just a brave acceptance of the consequences of what this you know. There, there, there. We should say that, we, and again, you know, I'm not a physicist. You know, we should drag your brother in here to to get into more of these details, but. Um, there's no picture of quantum reality that tracks our common sense intuitions about how the world should be. so you're 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 left accepting something at least at this point that seems frankly bizarre, but many worlds seems about as bizarre as as anything I could imagine.
0: No, you're not left with accepting it. And again, I'm not rejecting it in a formal sense. It may be an insane phrasing of something that could be phrased rationally from some other perspective. But as phrased, It really is the rejection of the idea of parsimony, and not for a good reason, just because... I mean, actually, Eric does have a term for this sort of thing. I hope he won't resent
1: my applying it here. I think he would, but desperation physics. But it's not even... Just forget about many worlds for a second. Just imagine a universe that is infinitely large. Now, one of the the probabilistic consequences of that scenario is that if you just go far enough in any direction... Again, you run into the same problem. Anything that can happen will happen an infinite number of times. Right? Yep. I mean, that's how big infinity is. So there are an infinite number of identical copies of us having infinitely similar and, and slightly different conversations than this an infinite number of times simply if you make the universe big enough. I mean, that's just, that just falls out of probability theory. Right. But here's, this is my
0: point about fractals, actually and you know i i'm speaking a little bit out of my depth here but my understanding is that there's a problem with coastlines which is that they get infinitely long the closer you measure they approach infinity in yeah. length as you get better at measuring the nuances of a coastline right that obviously doesn't make any sense the coastline isn't getting bigger because you're measuring more finely well right? no so,
1: it it makes sense i mean your your ruler has to get infinitely thin and small i mean like you you right but the point is as you you, get down to the planck scale and as you
0: asymptote to infinity right right you discover i screwed up somewhere and it isn't my ruler i screwed up conceptually
1: well this sort of comes back to zeno like this this is you've you've applied zeno's paradox to measuring a coastline
0: bingo but the point is there is a way to do this and it took somebody stepping back and saying you know what math is going to have to be we're going to need a new toolkit, just the Mm. same way Newton and Leibniz discovered a toolkit for, uh, people don't like it when I say it this way, but for um, calculating the incalculable, which is what calculus did as Mm. I see it. Um, But anyway, the point is, I think the many worlds interpretation is a best answer to a problem that is phrased so incorrectly that we can't... that. Just as if you asked the question about where these creatures came from 3,000 years ago, nobody had Darwinism to offer. So there wasn't even a way to begin to phrase the answer credibly. Hmm. You could say, well, then that leaves you picking between deities who might have done it and really what we're after is figuring out which one it was when in fact it wasn't any of them. It was processes that were understandable, but we didn't yet have the mechanism to do so. So I think that's where we are in that
1: case. Yeah, it might be. I mean, it's hard to see what we're not seeing here. Can't even dimly imagine. But it it does seem like. Uh, I mean, it is a, it is a fairly straightforward claim that. The, again, the, the 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 infinite case is is even simpler because it's just, you know, it doesn't re- require any notion of universes splitting, but it's. Um, it's hard to know where to, where to bite the bullet. I think I think the the thing to recognize with the these counterintuitive consequences of infinity is just how counterintuitive infinity is. I mean, infinity is not just really really big, right? Right. It's, it, it's, and and our intuition that that it's just really really big, no. The, the rules change when you when you uh, put that symbol of infinity. On the on the paper, right? Ra- 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 rather than ag- just a very big number, if we can you know. agree that
0: in an infinitely large universe, somewhere at some point, in fact, an infinite number of places, an infinite number of times, yeah. a asteroid will have hit another asteroid, an aardvark will have been formed, absent an atmosphere, immediately died yeah. and disintegrated into a bizarrely large petunia of a unusual color, yeah. right? An infinite number of times. Yeah. I'm well, telling whatever
1: you, is compatible with the law of, laws of physics, will have happened what, an
0: infinite number of times. Yes, I don't believe that has ever happened anywhere in the universe, and I believe that actually, what we will ultimately come to understand is that the universe has to be limited in a way that that actually won't have occurred ever.
1: Well, but one easy way to bound that is just to say that it's we don't live in an infinite universe, however right. big it is, it's just it's, it's not just very, close very to being right. infinite. Yeah, so yes. we need not worry about this particular.
0: Definitely large event. isn't infinite, and the difference is huge. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, yeah. I agree. So, all right. Back to free will. But I I should just, I'll I'll tell you, I I think you, if you want to close the door to many worlds or at least beat your intuitions into shape there, I think you should probably have either uh, David Deutsch or Sean Carroll on your podcast because they're both all in on on that topic. All in. I love it when people
0: do. All I want to do is bet against it because, you know, I'm certain to be right and it's easy money. So, Um, okay, back to free will. Uh, Let's take off the table. A completely deterministic universe, because e- even if that was the answer, there's nothing to be done in a deterministic universe. In a discussion, that would be, you know, the discussion will be what it is. Um, well, and let's we all- but
1: again, I, I think that's not a necessary conclusion psychologically, because you still don't you still don't know what is going to happen next, right? What something will happen next. What does and- it mean to know? Well, be, to be able to talk about, to be
0: able to self-report. You mean be able to? I mean, none be, of this makes any sense in a completely deterministic well, but it universe. But it makes
1: psychological sense.
0: Nothing makes any psychological you, sense. No. You still well,
1: have to get lunch. You still
0: want No, lunch. there's no have to get. There's no nothing. There is and the illusion that we are having a conversation. The conversation isn't a conversation because we're not deciding what to say and our blood pressure is rising because we have a disagreement. Isn't It's nothing. It's just the thing unfolding. It's it's a, no
1: okay. So the, it's so a rock tumbling down a hill. I may not understand your concern here, but this it, it, this seems close to me, psychologically close to me to uh, a point that is often made that I often find surprising because it, in my mind it means the opposite of what uh, its purveyors seem to think it means, uh, and. Many people have made this. um, It's a very common objection to an argument against free will. I saw it made by Noam Chomsky somewhere at the end of a lecture that's on YouTube. Um, I I, I know many other people I can think of who've made this argument, which is, okay, if we have no free will, what's the point of reasoning at all? What's the point of talking about this at all? You're, you're, You're arguing as though... You're, you're, the fact that you're arguing about free will, the fact that you're trying to convince me that it's an illusion, presupposes rationality, which, presupp- which presupposes freedom of will. But in my world, it presupposes nothing of the kind. If, if rationality is one of these cases where our absence of free will is is should be salient to us. If I, I mean, just take the easiest case, if I ask you to add up a column of numbers, right, invoking the 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 algorithm of addition, you have zero freedom as to. I mean, if you're, you're either going to do it right or wrong. That's total freedom. <laughs> yeah, and 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 it's you you, you know how you apply the, those rules uh, is is utterly determined by what those rules in fact are, and you you will get the you'll get the right answer. Uh, you'll, you'll 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 either be enslaved by that process successfully, or you'll fail. Well, and but, in either case, you, have, you can't claim to have freely chosen the, the But the I path. think you just, you just swapped in free will for determinism.
0: My uh, concern, the thing I want to take off the table, is the idea that any of this means anything in a completely deterministic universe. As far as I'm concerned, as long as we can get out of a de- completely deterministic universe, we still have something to talk about with respect to free will. In a completely deterministic universe, not only do you win the free will argument but there's nothing to argue about argument itself doesn't make any sense it's just another process unfolding the idea that there's any consciousness to be had is the most absurd irony that could possibly be
1: well so does it uh, mean to turn the
0: telescope to the sky and even figure out how big the universe is in a deterministic universe
1: well uh, so in at the end of the day or you know at the end of the epoch at the end of the universe uh, it will. It, you will see that it had, had just been one long row of dominoes. If you're still preserving this notion of process, or you'll just say there's the you know, process itself was an illusion. There's just it's like this is a novel that's already been written, and we're on page 17 now, but page 175 exists just as surely as this page does. And you know there's no there is no process. Uh, there's no there's no development. Um, there's just and, a and mechanism the, unfolding. Right and but there's no there's no unfolding in the end there's just like there there's there's there are no events no so, it's it's unfolding uh, in the sense that a Rube Goldberg machine ultimately uh you know
0: puts the toast in the toaster or whatever it
1: does right well so if if you if you're going to stay with the process if you, if you're going to go along for the ride you know ride through the 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 Rube Goldberg machine Right. If you're going to be the ball that's being, you know, knocked around in the machine, as opposed to standing outside the machine and viewing it as a totality, right? Um, then psychologically, the next moment is still uncertain for you, right? So you're like you have you have a range of options. You have an apparent range of options. It which... feels
0: like you have a range. The question is, why does it feel anything? Because yeah. so he. he yeah. Look, I can't prove that we're not in a totally deterministic universe. What I can say is that the phenomena inside of this totally deterministic universe don't make any sense relative to it. They're well, a well, cruel they do. joke. No. They're see, a mechanism for particles to get from A to B that were inevitably going from A to B.
1: Yeah, but 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 who care I mean that that's you wouldn't cru- care, you wouldn't know. cruel cruel joke doesn't doesn't constrain our thinking about the nature of reality. The and... determinism constrains every bit
0: of thinking that ever happened, every discovery that was ever made. The idea that there is evolution in a completely deterministic universe makes no sense because every interaction that ever happened between any two creatures was completely uh, proscripted from the first moment that the universe came into being. So, well, but it, it was. It
1: wouldn't seem like it. It wouldn't seem like it, but, but the that, but question that, is psychologically. That's, but the truth is, it can seem like it. So, I mean, this is the other issue I have with free will, which is if you pay it, if you pay close enough attention to what it's like to be you, you can notice that everything is just happening, right? You're like you don't know what you're going to think until you think it, right. until the thought itself yeah. arises, and it arises in the same. Adventitious way that you know a hummingbird could fly in your window, right? Oh. Like it's it it is you did you're not standing in relationship of authorship to there, there is in fact no you that is standing there pushing the thoughts into view. I'm not arguing right. that it couldn't be. In fact, of course, it could be. Let's imagine
0: an infinitely right. powerful relative to our universe, an infinitely powerful critter that decided to put together a deterministic computer in which we would. G- have the unfolding of the universe and we would live it just as we do. And there was no chance of anything ever coming out. No, I know, know,
1: but you seem to be arguing that if it were so, then one, either we couldn't have the exact experience we're having now, or if we did, it would be a cruel joke. And, and and that would, and the fact that it would be a cruel joke would require something different of us in the next moment. There's not, there's no choice for anything different in the next moment.
0: All I'm saying is that, first of all, I'm a dyed in the wool Darwinist hmm. I believe Darwinism works because there are multiple outcomes and better outcomes propagate in a completely deterministic universe you might see the same thing unfolding but there would be no meaning to any of it and well
1: meaning again meaning is a I, I think meaning is another one of these fishy concepts that's that can be can be applied appropriately in within certain frames but it's not. It's not an ultimate concept. It's not a concept that can be applied everywhere without creating howlers or, or well, that's the thing. Know, if, fictions. If this is, I mean, look, I'm surprised
0: that we're stuck on completely deterministic yep. universe as a possibility. Well, uh, I just, I just don't see as,
1: I, if it's pot, if it's the case. Uh, so, so, so that we're not talking past each other, let's let's just uh, revisit one point here. The, it is usually felt, I mean, it, it, I think it will be keenly felt by almost everyone listening to us that the problem of free will endures because on the experiential side, we sort of know we have it. We feel it, right? Like our, our, yeah. our, our experience is not compatible with it being an illusion, Yeah. right? And so if you're going to tell me it's an illusion, you're telling me I didn't go to New York. Right, and so I know something's fishy there because I I can choose right now to have tea or coffee. Yeah. Right. It's it's on me, and I can do it. You know, that sense of being in charge. Right. That is that it requires some additional observation of what it's like to be you, but that you can get past that and realize that your experience moment to moment is totally compatible with free will being an illusion. So right. I, I just want to plant a flag there where people can see it. I, I, of, I agree right. with that statement. That okay.
0: l- You and I are on the same page with respect to the question of how do we feel? We feel free. What does that imply about how free we are? Almost nothing.
1: Free will is a useful fiction the way most people understand it. But let me point right. out... But l- I would make the additional point that when I pay attention, which is you know a, a more and more of the time... I don't actually feel free in that, in that sense. Like what I feel like is the, the witness to the fundamental mystery of being in each moment, which is thoughts just appear. Intentions just appear. Some of them are, seem actionable. Some of them don't. The why I, why there's a, why one has enough, uh, Charge in one moment to be actionable, and, and and in another moment it fails to to move me. Um, all of that is is irreducibly mysterious, right? And there's no there's no place I'm standing as as a conscious witness to to this process where where it feels like I have the free will that most people seem to be talking about. Oh, I definitely think the door you have walked through is worth
0: walking through, in part because it gives you greater access to the very limited, rarefied, and I would argue, highly desirable freedom that is possible.
1: Okay. So so let's let's talk about what that may or may not be.
0: Okay. Yeah. What, what that may or may not be. So let's just notice something. You have two children. Yep. That's weird.
1: You're you're a a, highly prime number.
0: You're a (laughs) highly successful, handsome guy. You, You surely had you decided to do it,
1: could have arranged to have a great deal more children than two. Uh, well, I'm, I'm not sure about that, but uh, are you suggesting that I should be more moved by, by Darwinian logic than I, than I in fact am? No. I'm saying that if
0: there were no free will... Then we know that one of the components of the equation that ought to be driving you ahead, without your ability to intervene meaningfully on your own behalf, would be a fitness-maximizing function, and we would expect you to have a great deal more children than that, given your privileged position in the universe. And
1: well, your... no, no. So, that, so, but that suggests that the the determinism would cause us to be. More slavishly devoted to uh, ancient apish, genetically driven urges than we are, and that that's you know all all these other countervailing forces that 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 have civilized us are not yet just more determinism. Right, but so my point is, if your argument were true as you stated
0: it, which it may be, and alone on the floor of arguments relative to this puzzle, which I believe it isn't. Mm -hmm. If it were both of those things, then I believe one of the factors that robs you of free will would see fitness as a primary function. And that what in fact has happened is not that civilization has come to a wiser understanding of how many children to have. What's happened is an accident of history. That, The act of sexual intercourse and the phenomenon of sexual reproduction have turned out to be divorced from each other biologically. There was no need to drive our ancestors to enjoy reproducing because driving them to pursue sex was sufficient to get reproduction to happen. Mm. The fact of those two things being uh, different from each other leaves room for us to intervene technologically so that you can engage in family planning and decide not only how many children you want, but when you want to have them. Right. And, you know, all sorts of things. So the fact of family planning is, uh, in many instances at least, anti-Darwinian. Now, I'm not arguing against it. I'm not a fan of being a slave to uh, fitness. Uh, In fact, I've argued publicly that we must rebel against those drives that would have us maximize fitness because they're going to get us killed. But the fact that we find it relatively easy to engage in family planning and that we would find it very much more difficult to uh, to swear off sex mm. tells us something. You have two different levels of freedom with respect to those two choices. And the reason that you have two different levels is arbitrary, right? A-
1: and not secured on the basis of any... Intention or or any free will of my own, right? Like I, I'm I'm a mere puppet of that difference. Well, I understand that your argument your argument is
0: not wrecked by the observation that you have two different levels of freedom relative to reproductive behavior and reproduction itself, and but,
1: and also the the what you're calling a different level of freedom is by with some other emphasis just seen as freedom to be pushed around by other forces. Yep. In this uh, case, cultural forces. Totally, totally get your argument. But right. let's,
0: let's try an experiment. As I was reading your book on free will, I imagined a person, actually quite a plausible person. I think people have a way of reading more agnostically than they might, but somebody who read your book not so agnostically and understood the depth and completeness of the argument that you were laying out might be thoroughly disturbed by the discovery of just how little freedom they had over their own lives Mm. and it is not implausible that somebody who found themselves horrified by the discovery that free will was essentially non-existent might seek to generate it that they might attempt to live in such a way so that they would go from a state of having no freedom to at least having some And what's more, it would not be, I think, incorrect to think, well, maybe it's too late for me, but maybe I can generate, I can bootstrap some freedom for people five generations down my lineage and, you know, I can at least do them that favor. I mean, it's similar motivation as I might have to want to see the ecological problems of the world addressed so that future generations have a nice planet to live on and and enjoy so were such a person to exist were somebody to have that reaction to your argument and to seek to generate freedom i believe that they would actually have a path to doing so and it would involve at first the use of randomness to generate decisions that were not otherwise going to emerge from their cognitive processes so if i were to you know get a fancy set of dice and I were to put in some time figuring out how, let's say, I started out with vacations. And I said, well, I am going to set up my computer to take the inputs that I put in from dice rolls that I am convinced are actually random, and I'm going to vacation at the closest uh, coordinate to, by some scheme, what I've rolled Mm. to the dice right i could specify some limits so that i wouldn't end up you know on a, a desolate atoll or something mm-hmm. like that but anyway you could generate a series of experiences in life that were only the process of the one decision to embrace randomness as a chooser and then whatever consequences happened you would have whatever discussions you had in the locations that had been chosen for you you would uh, see whatever sunsets you saw and that this would generate a mind that at some point would be very different from the mind that had been constrained by some plodding series of decisions that followed from each other and generated their own uh, their own follow-on phenomena.
1: Yeah, but no more free. I'm not sure about that. I mean, it, 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 it would be different, but it's just as hostage to proximate causes that were ungovernable I mean in, in this case literally ungovernable like if you're rolling dice to decide what to do next eat next say next you know, who to be in the world like you know, choosing a career choosing yep. a mate you you can you're you're being played upon by a process that doesn't in that case doesn't even feel like your own uh, your own agency. Right, yep. it, 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 you're oh. you're you're giving your agency a way to to quite literally giving it away to chance. Yep. And uh, I'll grant you, it's a very different life than the person would be tending to lead if they didn't do that. But it's it's not what it's not. It, it doesn't align with the freedom that that anyone thinks they have or could reasonably want.
0: Nor am I trying to resurrect the conventional notion of free will. But what I I am getting, I'm not arguing that as you're being bounced around the globe by the roll of dice that you are free, right? You are enslaved to a different process. But what I am arguing is that if you do that long enough, what you do is you take the inputs that hold us captive and you drive their influence over yourself and your descendants towards zero. You don't get to 0 But you drive, let's say, the the fact that, you know, you're born in, in Los Angeles, you go to a certain school, certain ideas are resonant during the period of time. All of these things are causes that then result in you having certain values. Those values unfold in choices. Those choices manifest in phenomena in your life that you experience. And so you and I agree that this mm. has something very... Um, That this reduces the actual freedom that you are being carried along in a stream much more than you typically understand. If you generate phenomena by random and that creates a series of experiences that are themselves only sequenced by the one choice that you've made Mm -hmm. to break free from uh, being captive, then eventually my argument is you will have generated enough novelty. You're not you haven't generated a escape from causality. That's what I hear you saying. Right. The causality is still there after you've done this for twenty years or you've done it for twenty generations. Yeah. Right. You will always have causality.
1: And and causality is always an intruder into consciousness, into the space of consciousness. It's it's always Yes, it will you, never you, not can, you haunt you us. You can't own it. You, can, you, you can't actually say that consciousness was the the cause of that next thing because that next thing simply appeared. I mean, this, this is a separate conversation about why consciousness is, is, is so inscrutable, and in, in evolutionary terms, you know, it's hard to say what it's doing, and and if it's if it's hard to say what it's doing, it's hard to say why it have, might have evolved in the first place. But um, yeah, so it it doesn't it, it still leaves us with this 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 mystery at the level of experience that we why we would ever assert some something like freedom of will in the first place. It, I'll grant you it gives you a very different kind of life, but we sort of simulate that anyway just by being in dialogue with the world perpetually. I mean you're meeting new people, you're reading mm-hmm. new books, you're you're, you're 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 tasting the tastes and seeing the sights of new cultures. You're stirring the pot. If you're if you're living at all actively and and cosmopolitan in a cosmopolitan way, you're 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 rolling dice all the time. You're just not thinking about it that way. Well, so what I and th- you know, I'm by the way, I'm learning a lot about my own argument in dialogue with you, which is mm-hmm. uh, which what- is an example of what, you know, what I just said. Essentially, is that you're di- you don't know what your what you really think until you try it out and in the company of others or you, you, you write it down and people react to react to what you wrote I mean your your process of thinking isn't done uh, you know until you've until you it's hard to know when it's done right and then you, you keep again this is this is, everything is every collision is a kind of roll of the dice yes every collision is a kind of roll of the dice um, and you know there
0: was some part of me that uh, really wanted to have this conversation with you for exactly this reason uh is that i i did know that it would uh force my thinking forward in a way that wouldn't have happened otherwise but i think my argument comes down to this we have a misunderstanding about consciousness and i i'm not sure exactly i have heard you argue that consciousness is an evolutionary paradox i actually don't think it is but i also Um, I think I need to write what I believe the solution to that puzzle to be in a form where people can digest it and Mm. um, confront it. So I'm going to sidebar that for the moment. But let's just say I'm proceeding from a strong belief that consciousness is absolutely evolutionary and totally comprehensible in standard Darwinian terms. Mm. Um, That said, I believe that there is a border within us, a border I think you'll agree to, that a large fraction of our cognitive activity, even consequential cognitive activity that affects our behavior, is outside of consciousness, and some of it is so far outside of consciousness that no amount of training can access it. Yeah. Yeah. So, that said, there's a lot of stuff shallower that isn't typically conscious, but can be accessed by consciousness with behavior. It could be psychedelics, it could be sweat lodges, it could be meditation, it could be uh, extreme isolation. Lots of things can alter where the border of consciousness is. Hmm. And that our conscious mind is actually, it is the part of us that is capable of meaningful choice. It does not have nearly as much choice as it imagines. The experiments that tell us that, in general, when people believe they've made a conscious choice, that the actual choice is um, not preceded, or at least not preceded far enough by a decision in the conscious mind to be caused by it, that those things are troubling. Um, But the, I mean, really the question is, can the mind that thinks it's choosing be trained to um, increase its own capacity to alter our path, and can it? Um, well, maybe see, that's see, it. Yes,
1: yeah. See, I, I don't think the. And this is where meaning comes back in. I mean, when when you wonder how any of this could impact a life and spell the difference between a, a good life and a bad life, or a, a life worth living, and. A, and something less and, you know, how how the, the nature of reality, you know, it, how, how a deterministic picture of, of the universe may cancel or seem to threaten some of what we think it makes life worth living or, you know, creativity, even a, a concept worth entertaining. Um, I think it's, all of it makes sense, all of these Distinctions can run through in the content, in, in the psychological circumstance of a of a, a deterministic or apparently deterministic universe, because there is just there's there's a hierarchy of 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 what we want and value in each moment, right? And again, we didn't we, we don't we don't pick this hierarchy. There there are moments where we seem to uh, struggle to change it. Or to adhere to deeper values when more superficial ones come online and seem to threaten them. Um, we, we can become at war, we can we can fall into to conflict with ourselves and freedom, free you know, small F freedom can can seem to depend on our being able to resolve those conflicts in ways that we don't regret. Right. So if you're, let me take a, a very easy case and common one. You're trying to eat more healthily. There's a range of foods you want to eat, but you, you, you don't want to eat them now because you're, trying, you're now on a diet, right? And yet you know that in a few short hours you're going to be tempted to eat one of these foods that is now off your diet, right? And so you're in opposition with yourself. And this notion of freedom... Right. What would it mean to be free in this circumstance? Well, freedom would be. Is that, what would it What would it mean to be not free at all? To be just a mere automata, uh, automaton. You're, you're a slave to your passions in this regard. Well, then, you say you're going to be on a diet that lasts exactly 14 minutes, and then you've got a, a spoonful of ice cream in your mouth, and you and you think, "Fuck! I just I screwed up again, right? I, you know, why can't I stay on my diet, right? You, you part of you wants to be on a diet, and part of you wants to eat ice cream, and and the part that wants to to eat wins more or less every hour on the hour, and uh, yet the part we're talking to about the diet is the frustrated part, which says, "I still want to be on a diet, and I can't. I can't manage it. For some reason, I'm not free. How how can I get more freedom in the system, right? So that I can actually adhere to to what is in fact a deeper value than just getting the next bite of ice cream when when the desire arises." Um, that dichotomy of and that hierarchy or apparent hierarchy of values, again, that picture can be completely deterministic, or you can roll as many dice as you want to try to jiggle it around, but there's still more and less satisfying ways to navigate all of that. So if somebody comes in and says, "Actually, what you need is a um, you know, you need a you know a a serotonin agonist." That's going to give you a little more willpower here, and we need to get these foods out of your house in the first place. You just there's a basic principle of dieting that you know you haven't heard again through no free will of your own. You just didn't read the right books. Okay, I'm not quite sure which um, you know particles in the universe to credit with that failure, but you know you you didn't hear that the first principle is to just empty your pantry and shelves and fridge of all of these offending foods and then you don't need the same kind of activation energy to to keep your your willpower intact because the foods aren't there right so again this will have its whatever effect it has on you right the you know and throwing out the foods will have its mechanistic effect and all of a sudden you you may find yourself in possession of much more quote freedom Right now you've done now you you're not having a hot fudge Sunday because you don't have the ice cream and you don't have the fudge and you're, you, you know you're free to 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 maintain your diet right which again, you want to be on from, you know what principle in you that you authored no you you got shamed into this cajoled into this convinced into this by culture by, you know seeing a, a seeing the side of yourself in the mirror that and, and not liking the the the, the the outline something happened which again you can't fully own so it is still it's still we're still in Rube, Rube Goldberg land but uh, these distinctions in degrees of freedom you know ordinarily conceived psychologically they can be maintained and we can still make intelligent decisions about how to be how to get more or, or less more of what we want and less of what we don't want in this sphere of apparent choice well,
0: I mean, I think your example is a good one, and I think I, I get how it makes your point, but I think it also makes mine, which is you clearly have competing modules in your mind, right? You have a long-term module that would like to lose weight, for example, and you've got a short-term module that is aware of what things it has in the pantry that it might eat, and periodically it checks in with whether or not your guard is down enough to get you to go eat them. You can, as you point out, engineer a circumstance in which one of these modules is more dominant over the other Mm. than it typically is. Um, That, you know, in a completely deterministic universe, that means exactly nothing in something short of a completely deterministic universe.
1: Well, well, no, it, it it, it doesn't mean nothing because if you're living in the part of the deterministic universe where you, on this occasion successfully throw out all the popcorn and, and peanut brittle that you ate last time around This in this part of the universe in this period in human history and uh, or across your lifeline if again we're still talking about process, you're going to get thinner through no free will of your own. See, I don't understand how we're tripping
0: over the consequences of a completely deterministic universe.
1: Well you, you would agree that the universe is if it's determined it's being determined is still compatible with saying they're gonna be fat people and thin people and we, we can we can find out whether you're one of them well I don't or know which what we're about are. to discover here I have right. a
0: feeling okay. if we can figure out why we're disagreeing about this there's something very important to be discovered but I'm, okay. I'm actually not compelled we can pull it off okay um, if we are in a completely de- deterministic universe then none of the words you just used to describe that have any meaning whatsoever this is well, all
1: yeah but it, it, the question is how far if we if we zoom out all the way yes then there's no there's no such thing as people that's like, what i mean like if we're ju- if we're just going to talk about particles and f- yes. and fields of force that's it there're no people there's nothing there are as if people right okay but at the level at which we can dignify the, the nouns and verbs that give us people and their, their doings, uh, we can still talk, we can still think about that deterministically. We can't and, think about anything. If it's all determin... I mean,
0: look, if we zoom all the way out, and it's really full determinism mm-hmm. from the moment the universe was created till the moment of heat death or whatever happens to it, then this is all the most ridiculous joke, and... The I, I mean the ver no word has a meaning. There's nothing. There's just thing. It's like billiard balls wondering about the meaning of trajectory. It's it doesn't make any sense. But but, but randomness doesn't ease that burden. It does. It does. And it does. I don't well, think we know completely how. But what we know is that there's more than one outcome possible, and therefore, I don't know how it is that when a cheetah chases a gazelle that there can be two possible outcomes, but I know that all of Darwinism is stacked on the idea that two things could have happened and one of them did. So two things could have happened and one of them did requires there to be randomness somewhere in the universe. And unfortunately, I do think we have to reach down all the way to quantum randomness to bootstrap something at the level of cheetahs and gazelles that is capable of explaining anything that we see, including what we
1: experience. I think, well, this is admittedly something I haven't thought much about, but it seems to me intuitively that you can still get Darwinism out of just the mere frequencies of things happening as they happen. Well, you you could
0: get... So, again, I have to leave it open as a formal possibility. You could get a universe in which pseudo-Darwinistic processes unfolded completely automatically with no opportunity for anything else to ever have happened, and all of the creatures would be produced inevitably in the same way that a screensaver could produce a fish tank on a a screen that had no two ways about it, right? That's all possible. But then I think we get into a philosophical question, not that there would be any us to get into anything like philosophy, nor would there be any philosophy, but if we just sort of grant that uh, leeway... Were we to be living in a universe in which every creature that ever existed or will ever exist was absolutely 100 pre, 100% predetermined from the first instant that plasma burst forth from whatever it was, if we lived in that universe, then you would have to say those things were created, right? In some sense, you would have to acknowledge that they had been planned. Because the process that creates them absent a plan requires there to be multiple ways that things can go and some things to be better at this game than others. Well,
1: well no, because it's just – there need not be a plan. It's just there just needs to be causal efficacy that has no degrees of freedom, right? Like it doesn't have to be – there's no place to stand where it's thought out in advance. It's just this is – here's an algorithm, right? So uh, here – this is this is perhaps a better analogy – I, there's an algorithm for producing all of the you know, the rational numbers. Say, right? I'm going to give you that algorithm. Or the the here's a better example: an algorithm for calculating pi. Right? The decimal expansion of pi. The decimal expansion of pi is whatever it is, right? And we haven't planned it. We 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 don't have to have it in mind in advance to to run this algorithm, right? The algorithm is totally deterministic. We have zero degrees of freedom. There's a literally infinite landscape over which this algorithm is going to be run. And yet the five, six, seven, eight come right, you know, foreordained, right? But there's no – we wouldn't say at the moment of the Big Bang where we began running this algorithm, every gazelle and – amoeba had to be you know conceived in the mind's eye of whatever started the process at the level of the individuals it doesn't make any difference but my point is let's say that you and i had been standing
0: outside the universe as it first came into being right Mm. before there was atoms right we're just looking at the amorphous hot whatever it is and i said you know let me show you a crocodile and i broke out a crocodile and i said These are going to happen by the hundreds of thousands, maybe the millions, right? At the moment that you have no order whatsoever, right, the idea of all the things that have to happen to get to a crocodile is it's a profound sequence. It's not in any way remotely like the sequence after the decimal place in pi, right? That sequence has, you know, I know I'm going to get in trouble mathematically if I say it has no order to it because obviously... Its order is implied by the relationship of the diameter to the circumference of a circle, but um, it is not a cumulative building process that becomes more and more fancy as you get farther from the decimal place. It just is. It's a sequence of numbers that's unique.
1: Yeah, but on some level, Darwinism doesn't get evolution doesn't get necessarily fancier as you get. I mean, it, it has. In in the local case, apparently gotten fancier, but there's also been, you know, cascades of simplicity. There are are instances where it goes
0: in the other direction, but in general, it started at no complexity or trivial complexity and reached amazing levels of complexity. So there's some sort of ability to generate complexity. And the only reason that works is because there's a cumulative process in it that has to do with competition. And my point really, and I, right. I don't know how i don't know how productive this is but my point is not that we can prove that we're not in a deterministic universe but that everything philosophical collapses downstream of that one
1: uh, claim well it it just depends on what part what what the framework is in which you are talking about anything because it's not in a deterministic universe, you can still talk about crocodiles. You just—I don't think it's like this. This argument sounds like there's no such thing as a crocodile because all there, all a crocodile is, is carbon and hydrogen and nitrogen and oxygen, right? So if you're talking about the the periodic table, there are no crocodiles, and there never will be crocodiles. No, no, I'm talking
0: about a process um, that. Edits down populations to small numbers of individuals that have advantages, and those advantages are cumulatively acquired in some lineage's uh, heritable uh, substances. I'm trying not to limit that to DNA, but Mm. basically I'm talking about DNA. My point, again, I'm not arguing that a deterministic universe is inconceivable. I'm arguing that the content of the universe is a bizarre paradox. It's a joke if it's downstream of a totally deterministic universe. Also, from what we can tell, the universe isn't totally deterministic. So I don't really think we have a problem. What we effectively have is a situation where we say we can't formally rule out the deterministic universe. We have some evidence that suggests the universe isn't totally deterministic. The evidence is not totally bomb-proof, but it's certainly suggestive. And if this is a totally deterministic universe, the cost of having gotten that one wrong—the word "cost" doesn't even mean anything.
1: Cost, wrong—none of these things mean anything well, because it's all inevitable. Yeah, th- th- so no, see, yeah, but that move—that's the move that I don't understand because whether it's inevitable or not. And again, I'm not taking a, posi- a strong position on. Determinism here. I mean, you know, there may be an element of randomness just woven into the fabric of, fabric of reality, but um, I don't see how it undermines any of the other distinctions we want to make in a local frame, right? There's still the difference between having your hand stuck in on a hot plate and not, right? There's still the difference. On, I mean, it, it, it may be mere d- determinism to have had that experience, to have recoiled from the experience and to now for the rest of your life have a strong preference for not having that happen again. And in some worlds you can avoid it again through just we're just talking about what the billiard billiard balls do in the end, but there's still in in describing the 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 any time point in that apparent process You can still make all the distinctions you want to make. You can still talk about crocodiles. You can still talk about billiard balls. A a crocodile is a very complicated billiard ball.
0: I don't know what can even means in the context of it. I mean, we're going to get stuck here. Again, I'm not saying a completely deterministic universe is impossible. What I am saying is that the idea of talk makes no sense. It doesn't mean it wouldn't be, but it makes no sense. The idea of an argument, the idea of a word. These are just simply... Billiard balls bouncing off of rails and changing their trajectory.
1: Do, do you, That's do all you, it is. Do you feel this when you watch a movie and you see the characters on screen have a conversation and have their various adventures, fall in love, fall out of love, uh, you know the movie's done. It's already been shot, right? There's There's zero degrees of freedom with yep. respect to what you're going to see in the next scene. Yep. Right, but you haven't seen this movie yet. Right, right. Do you? Does the the pointlessness of it all, or the or the the fact that it's it's not even a happening on some level, uh, does that continually intrude and make it seem like this is like we can't even, we can't talk about what happened in the movie because well nothing in fact happened. It's, it's that's it's a all... good
0: question, and I'm I'm going to take it seriously. Uh, I have two different answers. One is, what's really going on in the case of a movie is some artistic presence, a person or several people, have created scenarios, and for whatever reason, I've decided that I want those scenarios to play out in my mind so that I can vicariously experience or witness or enjoy or whatever it is. And so what I'm allowing to do is I'm allowing this deterministic piece of footage spliced together to create an impression, I am granting it access to parts of my brain, and then presumably inside my brain, I am temporarily erecting a little world that contains these characters. I'm allowing them to have identities. I'm allowing them to interact as they have been scripted in front of me, as if I was sitting at a cafe and watching them interact. And I am at no point um, delusional about where I am, whether these things are real, whether those are actors or the real people. Um, So I'm simultaneously aware that the movie itself is completely deterministic, already scripted at the point I sit down, it's already over. Hmm. Um, But what it does is it feeds data into my mind that allows the story to unfold in real time in a coherent fashion. I see no contradiction between those two things. On the other hand, I am sometimes aware that when I watch such a narrative, I'm sometimes aware, for example, of how far I am from the end of it and therefore what plot uh, twists are now off the table, right? If I know there's only four minutes left in the thing, there are certain plot devices that would not be useful and so I cannot help myself but to know that those things won't happen or if a character that I think is economically very important to the franchise has been lost. There's a part of me that thinks, you know, they probably wouldn't have killed that character off so quickly. And then something like game of Thrones, uh, takes that assumption and mm-hmm. uses it against you by killing off important characters, which you don't see coming. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. So I, I don't know how well that answers your question.
1: Well, I'm just, isn't your moment to moment experience of your life compatible with this experience of watching a movie so that like say it's it's like in a movie we're still talking you wouldn't say of a movie you can't talk about the characters you can't talk about the people you can't talk about events because however you look at it there's nothing there the experience is just light on a wall it, there's nothing's even moving. We're talking about still frames that are that are moving at 24 frames a second, uh, or we're just talking about pixels, or we're t- so all of that is deflationary, right? There's no, there's no there there, um, and conceptually, there's no there's zero degrees of freedom because it's you know the 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 last scene exists just as much as the first scene. There's actually no causal properties. Displayed between apparent events because, again, it's all scripted, right? So it's not yeah. like any, any one thing caused everything's been arranged to seem like it was causing uh, each subsequent thing. But it was everything was put in place. It's a still life. The cause was a studio
0: yeah. and artists and business interests. The cause right. was not what unfolds on the wall. Yeah, and we so
1: agree. yeah, but the experience of watching a movie is compatible with. Making all of the, dis- dis- the distinctions we want to make about human events and conversations and motives and how things looked and felt and the emotions displayed, and when it's certainly when it's working, you're so taken in by the the illusion of it that it seems not only like real life, it seems more real than real life in some sense because you're you're able your relationship to it is such that. You can, in, in 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 some strange way, you can get closer to the drama of human events than you can ever afford to do in real life when you're being seen by the other people in the room, right? So that's what's. I mean, the the, the pure voyeurism of watching a movie is is what what's so seductive about it. But I'm struck by the fact that real life, you know, this conversation is totally compatible with. Zero degrees of freedom in its unfolding. No, it's formally compatible. Well, it's it, 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 it's
0: we cannot prove that that's not what's going on. But
1: it's also, but but it's it's phenomenologically as as the experience of it is compatible with it. It's like I, I
0: don't even think it is, but I can't formally rule it out. That's what I would say. So let me let me try right. Let me try this on a, a different way, someplace I think is closer to home for you, based on the examples you use in your mm-hmm. your books. Uh, There's a cemetery near my house. My kids and my wife and I ride through it with some regularity on our bikes and electric unicycles and stuff. One day, my wife and I were biking back through it, and I was shocked. In general, you don't see any funereal activity, but there was a funeral in process. Two people, clearly parents, bearing a tiny casket, carrying it. pallbearers of this tiny casket on this hill. And, um, it shocked me a little bit. There was something, so much of the story was obvious mm. from what I was seeing. I couldn't nail it down a hundred percent, but it was like one frame was sufficient.
1: Yeah. So it's, a, it's a, it reminds me of the, there was a contest for, uh, like one one sentence novels, yeah. I think, and the example is uh, like baby shoes uh, for sale, unworn, or something, something like uh, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, it, I
0: think it's Hemingway actually is. Yeah, hey, baby I, shoes I, for sale, never, never used, or something, yeah, like, something like that. Like a, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. In fact, a friend of mine has run a contest for six word uh, stories uh-huh. uh, in his magazine. Um, but anyway. Um, some days later, I went back to look at what was going on on that hill um, because Heather and I, Heather had not seen the same thing. And so I wanted to figure out what I had seen so that we could at least right. understand it. And it turned out that entire hill was dedicated to very young children, stillborn children, children. Mm. Um, And the reason I raise it here is that in a completely deterministic universe, what the hell is going on with that hell? Can you imagine a completely deterministic universe in which babies are created, brought all the way to the point of uh, birth or shortly thereafter, only to torture their parents with their loss and put their parents through the agonizing decision to either treat this as the death of a human or to fail to treat it that way i mean that hill to me makes no philosophical sense in a deterministic universe in a non-deterministic universe that hill is a tragedy but i understand
1: it well no cuz i mean it's it's just as perverse to imagine that There's chance that it's, I mean, the only thing as perverse as mere clockwork is just disparities in good and bad luck, right? If it's just luck that spells the difference between having a happy, long and happy life, you know, with, with, you know, surrounded by loving, uh, friends and family and colleagues and being, uh in a 14-inch casket, right? That doesn't, that doesn't redeem, that doesn't reclaim our, our sense of the way things should be. Oh, it right? doesn't reclaim any goodness. It's still,
0: as I say, it's a tragedy. But its meaning is radically altered. The idea that those children might have grown into adults, that was at least a possibility. It was on the menu of possibilities and something went wrong
1: but but if that something that went wrong was the uh the flap of a butterfly's wings a continent away right again this is this is, well, a, this is a bad analogy because now now I'm invoking chaos and chaos is deterministic but if if it's a pure dice roll somewhere in the ether that is causing the difference rather than mere determinism then it, do, it just seems to me it's just as morally again, nothing turns on this because whether or not reality is morally uh, inscrutable or, or unfathomable, it, you know this is, it's nowhere written that it wouldn't be so, right? I mean, we just we, we're just now talking about our preferences. No, but I, I guess what I'm getting
0: at is I, first of all, I can put myself easily in the position of um, parents in the two scenarios here parents of a child who might have lived but didn't, Hmm. and parents of a child who was never going to live because that was written since the beginning of the universe, right? I'm very angry at that second scenario. That first scenario fills me with sorrow, but I don't have anyone to be angry about. Bad luck exists, and it sucks when it afflicts you. But it's not the same cruel joke as a universe that decided to award a child to you and then rob
1: you of it without... Ex- except in that universe you don't have any illusion that you could have or should have more importantly done something differently
0: well there's no question that there's a burden along with the universe in which multiple things can happen that when things go wrong you got to ask what role you played in it there's no no question about that
1: well you you do have to ask it in, in a deterministic one it's just that it's at a different level it's like you then you're it's a, it's a descriptive it, it's a descriptive question about what happened right like you know did this bad thing happen because I'm the sort of person who is you know negligent or drives drunk or something right and yet there's no place to stand where there's no place to really stand where that wasn't going to happen given the way the universe was at
0: yes but I don't even know what you mean by ask I mean even a word like ask seems to me ridiculous in the context where it is just another billiard ball ricocheting
1: off just another rail. The, the, the issue, though, is that, is that randomness doesn't reclaim what people, the, the, the meaning that people think they're going to lose here. Ah,
0: it doesn't recover it, but it is necessary to recovering it. It is not sufficient, but it is necessary. That would be my point. If there's no randomness, you can't recover it. If there is randomness, you might not recover it, but at least the possibility exists.
1: Well, it's just well, I, yeah. I, I don't really see that. I mean, I, again, I don't see, I don't see the emotional stakes here or the psychological stakes quite the way you do. I, I see because that there's there's a significant consequence. I mean, really, the only parameter that, that is of consequence here is the fact that we don't know what's going to happen next. Right, whatever whatever the nature of causality is, whether the universe is splitting in every instant and we're we don't know which one we're going to be in, um, whether it's all being pushed behind and it's it's all being pushed from behind determin, deterministically and we're just billiard balls, or whether there's a dice roller in the clockwork, the fact that the next moment in time is always of the it's always possible to, to surprise us right we have we have a model, we have a forward-looking model of what's likely to happen and again our, our notion of, of likely uh, carries with it this this intuition that that there, there are degrees of freedom. you know there's, there's possibility as a thing, right um, But there is in fact at the end of the day simply whatever happened, right We only take one path. Through this this landscape, and we never check the counterfactual. We have a story we're telling our, ourselves about the counterfactual, but again, it's it's in every moment. It's it's just a story. It's confirmably just a story, right? And uh, there's simply what happens, and what happens has this element of this continuous element of surprise, and what's more, it has the our choices, our apparent choices, are in fact the proximate cause, uh, the apparent proximate cause of so much that matters to us, right? So my choice to eat the the ice cream is the is the thing that ended my diet at that moment, right? I, I, I could have been the guy who stayed on the diet, but I wasn't yet again, right? So, And then a month from now after I've gone to, you know, Jocko Willink's Boot camp, and I have a, a different orientation toward discipline and everything else. Now I'm the guy who's cleared out all the ice cream in the house. Now, now I'm the guy who's on the diet, and lo and behold, I'm losing weight. And you know, it turns it turns out that my body functions the way any body does, and and physics matters. Again, there's no free will intruding here, but I'm having what I'm having this very different experience, and it's it's always. Intelligible and uh, compatible with our ordinary intuitions about choice and probability, given the fact that we don't know what's going to happen next, right? And that would that would be true in a fully in a fully clockwork deterministic universe. Um, okay. I you know you so, don't you don't know what you're going to think next, right? And I don't know what you're going to think next, and we're both going to hear what you say next. Well.
0: Again, my, my, my objection here is philosophical. I can't know if I'm in a de- completely deterministic universe. All I can know is that none of the things that I think I know make any sense in the way I think I know them. Even the idea of knowing them makes no sense.
1: Well, They wouldn't make any sense if you could experience the universe from that point of view. Right, They would make sense given that you apparently can only experience the universe from this point of view. So... Can we agree that if
0: the universe were some alien's screensaver, that they could have rigged it in a completely deterministic fashion and that it could have all of the creatures that I know and love in it and Mm. I could be a character and you could be a character and we could be as determined as the characters in in a film? That there's nothing against the law of physics that prevents that other than I would argue that the outer universe has to not be deterministic in order for that to have come to be. But let's be agnostic about that point.
1: Yeah, well, no, but I was making a slightly different point, which is that the, the funerals on the hill for young kids in any one of these universes carries the same tragedy and can be parsed from the same set of psychological intuitions in any of these universes, simply because we as parents, or they as parents, never knew what was gonna happen next, couldn't know what was gonna happen next, right? I, I, so it's like, we're just, we're, we're, we're at this point in the movie, whether this is really a movie, or, or it's really, or, or the stakes are, are, are really real, right? Whether this, the movie's already been shot, or we're shooting it now. Right. This okay. is a, this is actually the, this is a, this is a probably better use of the analogy. There's the imagine a documentary, right? Where what's being filmed is not scripted. It's really being shot, you know. So it's it's real life, you know, on film, right? So the question is, are we are we shooting this now, or has this already been shot on some level? Mm-hmm. That difference, I like that. yeah. And from the point of view of um, from the point of view of everyone who doesn't know what's going to happen next, right, the fact that it might be possible to know what's going to happen next or what what, what you know to see the 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 last scene before you see the first scene, well, okay, that's philosophically interesting to, to entertain, right? Um, and let's get the physicists to work on on the problem of whether or not that's so. but subjectively, and in the space in which we try to make meaning out of our lives, the thing that matters is we don't know what's going to happen next. And at each point along the way, we have to act, right? We have this apparent burden of deciding what to have for lunch, right? And we, we go left or right by turns and the process is subjectively inscrutable and, and is bound to be so. And that's the space in which we make our lives. And so I, and I don't see how determinism, randomness, some combination thereof ever changes the... the. Mo- I mean, unless it changes that moment-to-moment reality where, um, you know, one philosophical truth being so... Gives you a different picture of of the future, essentially. Um, I don't see I don't see how it matters. I mean, it's 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 bizarre. It's bizarre to think of the, the big picture is bizarre to think about whatever is true. I mean, I I, I think I I think I feel that randomness is is uh, stranger than you you think it is. Uh, but so I'm so the the comparison between determinism and randomness, uh, you know, or determinism plus randomness doesn't uh, isn't as invidious in my brain as it is in yours because I, the both are just yeah. kind of impossible to think about but um we have this we have this moment right and then things keep appearing and among those things are thoughts intentions desires preferences and it's on the basis of this roiling ocean of phenomenology that we make our lives right and so and no one who has a kid knows what that kid will be like as an adult or whether he or she will reach adulthood right that's that's just that is built into the circumstance and any any story we tell ourselves about what was going to happen what was bound to happen However much we could convince ourselves that one or, or the other of those stories is true doesn't change the fact that we had to act under uncertainty in every in every moment and, and still do. Well, you know, I, I don't know if I'm the only person who doesn't get this point or I'm
0: the only person who does get this mm-hmm. point. But I have the sense that none of the words that you are saying that we still we have to act in the moment, I, that those things lose all. All actual meaning not that you wouldn't be saying them and not that I wouldn't be hearing them and right. not that we wouldn't be you know there's no choice well, about any of it
1: but they, they lose all actual meaning uh, in many different frames I mean no. they, they, they lose meaning again just if you're going to use the periodic table as, no, as no, your frame no. they don't
0: lose meaning the fact is humans evolved they evolved to use language with each other to exchange abstract ideas across open space so that they could reside in multiple brains simultaneously and their implications could be discussed.
1: Well, no there's there's no but you're you're smuggling purpose into there which, which need not exist. I mean uh, there's the fact that this is all happening, but we didn't do this so that we could do this.
0: We didn't it's not intentional, but evolution built our capacity to exchange abstract ideas across open space. For a reason, which is that it gave us competitive advantage over creatures that had less of that ability.
1: Okay, but that, that's a different reason. That's that's not a. There's no te- teleology in this system. This well, is just. This can still be pushed from behind. It's just. It's effectively. This is this. This works like. Th- th- a, there's a survivor bias here. There's a wor- massive sur- it survivor works bias.
0: to provide advantage in a universe in which advantage appears to make a difference between success and failure, which to me requires that some other outcome was possible were it not for the capacities in question. That's...
1: Yeah, I mean, I I don't see the... Again, now we're, we're sort of going around the same track here, but I don't see the necessity of supposing that. I mean, I, I think that may in fact be true, right? I mean, possibility, you know, stands a very good chance of being a a real thing, right? But it's interesting to consider... How reality would, how you'd expect reality to look if it weren't a thing, if, ex- if, if there's simply just what happens. I would expect it to work the same way. But if
0: I could stand outside of it, I would say that's a ridiculously cruel joke. Okay. And yeah. you know, if this but, is, let's say that this is a deterministic universe, and that some parent somewhere can't help but listen in to this podcast, and then they lose a child, and they end up burying the child on that hill, and they end up thinking you mean that child was only ever a cruel joke that 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 child was never there was no possibility of it becoming a, a person um, i would think that person standing on that hill would have a right to be resentful of a universe in which that was the only option in a way
1: that but bad the, luck okay but there's so i mean why why cash in your chips there i mean there's so there's so many other reasons to be resentful of a universe, even if you think there are degrees of uh, of this universe, even if you think there are massive degrees of freedom and there's there are different ways to interpret even that moment i mean like a cruel joke is just one provincial framing to put on the nature of reality that um, when when a million are available
0: let's right, try you... let's try another one that I think maybe hits more squarely on the head hmm. you use in I think the moral landscape, maybe? Not sure. One of your books used the example of uh, locked-in syndrome. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a situation in which somebody's conscious mind is awake and functioning normally, but they are left with no power to communicate with the outside world or act in any way. They can't raise a limb or anything like that. Um, Truly one of the most frightening things that could happen to yeah. a person, especially yeah. in light of the fact that the outside world might be
1: unaware that that is what has happened to you. Yeah. And in previous periods in history w- would have certainly been aware, uh, certainly would have been unaware that that was what was happening to you. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah. As terrifying as it gets. Yeah. I believe that we are all in some sense in that syndrome if we are in a completely deterministic universe and yet have something that functions as a consciousness if we are absolutely trapped on a trajectory and there is no hope of in any way deviating it we are conscious minds trapped as conscious minds on trajectories in which consciousness has essentially
1: no meaning other than yeah but the, the thing is we don't know how good the movie is going to get right we're the movie right and it's and it, it could already be shot but we the final scene could just be the the most spectacular firework display—it could it could it could not only be stranger than we imagine, it could be stranger than we can imagine.
0: But right. That—that that seems to me, um, and I know you know you're you're none of these things, but it seems to me uh,
1: solipsistic and hedonistic and no no no. You forget about—it's not mere pleasure. It just it could be, you know. Just inscribe your deepest creative values in the space provided, but just without the freedom to do otherwise. Right. But then
0: whatever it is, having been scripted since the beginning of the movie, is not a consequence of anything to which I might uh, ascribe cause. It just simply happens. And so my delight at the fact that I don't know what's going to happen and would like to know... um, is uh, it's simply about somatic experience over which there's no possibility that it could ever have been other. I mean, I, again, I just I think every word here
1: loses its meaning. Well, it's it's not uh, it's not just somatic experience. It's the life of the mind as well, right? It's just whatever it, it, you know. I see us as functioning in a a landscape of mind where we don't know. What experiences are possible? yeah, right. We know we know that we know the ones we've had, and we can we can form intuitions about what should be adjacent to us in mental space, right? And what might be available to more insightful or more intelligent or longer lived minds than our own, right? we can we can form we can you know, we can get our science fiction writers to tell us good stories about what might be possible. Um, we can derange our our own nervous systems but by, by various methods uh you know which are again which are relate to your example of you know pursuing some you know chaos producing you know algorithm where we decide to take vacations at you know at the roll of the dice and then see what happens uh we can as you said we can take psychedelics we can we can practice meditation we can confront you know, collide with other cultures who have, you know, very different norms than we do and just see what see what that moves around in our minds. But, um, you know, you can go to Burning Man and, and be surprised by things you find there. And the net result of all of that is kind of pushing into, again, this could all be just dominoes falling, uh-huh. right? But, and I don't see how, adding randomness to that fundamentally changes the picture. Let's say it's let's say it's just dominoes plus the the wind gusts of randomness. We're pushing into a space that we know must exist in potential. You know, it's like I mean, whether you know, whether at the end of the day there is simply what happens, there's this apparent sense that there are all kinds of there's an infinite number of things that that could conceivably happen from this point, from the, the from the point of view of the of the present, and we don't know which of those things will, in fact, you know, undergo the the, the formality of actually becoming so. Uh, and so that is a path. That is a a path of psychological discovery. Whether or not freedom is real right it's like you're 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 pushing you're you're in the woods and you don't know what's in there with you and you're exploring right that is a psychologically a thrilling and scary and beautiful experience and it doesn't matter if it's a screensaver well
0: i i get i think i understand what you're saying but here's what i feel like it implies i feel like you and actually other people who I've encountered who have made a uh, an argument for full determinism, I feel like the model is that the world is fully deterministic up to the border of psychology and that you're actually able to observe. And, of course, everybody who would make an argument in favor of full determinism understands that there's nothing in observation that is absent from the full deterministic model. But I feel like the things that you say relative to meaning observation, doesn't matter if it's a screensaver because it's still beautiful and fascinating to you, that all of that more or less assumes a mind that is independent of complete determinism trapped in a world that is completely deterministic. So the, the, the human being, it has no meaningful ability to deviate anything, but it's still functioning in a way that you can appreciate it. Whereas I would say the word appreciate has zero meaning. You well,
1: well, no, but the, the, the no, the, the appreciation is still mere mechanism in mere this mechanism. picture, but it feels a certain way, right? So, and like I didn't, I didn't author my preference for beauty over ugliness, right? But finding that I have one becomes actionable, right? Again, and to the degree to which I'm moved by it or if it flips tomorrow is again something i can't account for but there's still this experience of being suddenly presented with something that you didn't see a moment ago and finding it beautiful and there's no place you don't have to justify that from you don't have to stand outside of that mechanism to justify it to make it actionable you just it's just it's just there right it's just a lock and key that that you keep you know, marrying and twisting again and again, and they change, right? In this picture,
0: you're describing a circumstance in which the mechanism is acting through means that are utterly bizarre if they don't mean what they appear to mean. So the fact that I am speaking to you by vibrating the air molecules between us in such a way that they vibrate a membrane in the side of your head, which then causes hairs in a canal to flop over such that you can deduce the abstract meaning in my mind and build a version of it in your own mind. That's such an odd way. If I say, hey, pass the salt, and I'm doing this through this utterly magical mechanism of vibrating air molecules between you and me, Hmm. right? And the purpose... Is to get the salt from your side of the table to my side of the table what a mundane thing to happen in a universe by such an odd means why am I able to put an abstract thought
1: into your mind from across well, the room uh, no one no, no one ever said this wasn't strange it's every everything is strange. No, I think it's but, preposterous. I think it's like yeah, saying that but, a but coastline then, but gets longer as you
0: measure it more closely.
1: But I mean, this is the this is the joke. You know, people say life is strange, but you know, I say compared to what? I don't know who this is—Randy Newman or somebody. But the what are you comparing it to? Like this is everything looked at closely disgorges its utter strangeness.
0: Um. Let's put it this way. I do believe in parsimony. And so my point is not that it isn't all very, very strange, because it is. My point is we ought to minimize the necessity of strangeness to our explanations as much as possible. Because as we allow ourselves strangeness in our foundational claims, our thinking uh, devolves into madness.
1: Well, no, I, I think, I mean, strangeness, I think is just, it's... Ineradicable. In just in every case, it's not that I mean it's it's there's a fundamental strangeness to the fact that anything exists, right? However, it exists, whether lawfully or randomly. Uh, there's. I mean, I mean, this is this is this is where like if you look closely enough at what's happening or what seems to be happening, then ideas that sound like they add a, a a whopping dose of strangeness to the picture don't actually add much at all. So like the idea that this might be a simulation, right? Well, is that really much stranger than what seems to be going on when you actually it's 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 more I mean it's it's not pars- I'll grant you it's not parsimonious or at least, you know, not you know absent you know taking a certain argument seriously it's not parsimonious. But it's I mean everything that everything that we think is happening is so bizarre that it's it's a um and and our engagement with it is so bizarre. I mean this is this is I don't know if you've followed Donald Hoffman's Work at all, but he's a um, a, a cognitive uh, psychologist who um, you know has this kind of user interface theory of of consciousness, and and uh, I will have I think before this comes out, I will have just released a podcast with him where um, Anik and I interviewed him, and you know his argument, you know the TED Talk version of his argument is that we. What we think of as our engagement with reality, you know our, our conscious perception of reality is like is, is very much analogous to a, a user interface like on a desktop of a computer. And you know, you know the, the trash bin or the blue folder icon is bears really no relationship to what is in fact true at the base layer of reality. And it's just it's useful. Uh, to, to think about these things, but you know the blue pixels of the folder do not in any way represent what's actually going on, uh, you know, at the at the base layer of of code, and uh, we are. And he has a Darwinian dar- argument about why this would be so, but uh, it's not. It's not just that we are not totally in touch with reality as it is. We are basically not remotely in touch with reality as it is and we have a we're we're in a a, a simulacrum of something which is you know it's, it is as strange as if it were a a simulation well uh, to me on the one hand this seems like it has to be almost
0: uncontroversial that we are sensitive to certain stimuli and completely insensitive to others means that what we experience as reality is the dimmest edit that allows you to maneuver without tripping over stuff and injuring yourself and you know that we have enough information to improve our odds substantially of getting through the world but we don't have anything like the ability to observe the world directly so some of it uh, maybe I'm not getting it for yeah, you, it well, seems it, like I mean he has
1: a, a just a stronger claim built into it which is that you know when you do the the game theoretic analysis of the fitness functions fitness since fitness is the only actual signal in in darwinian terms and truth isn't a signal at all fitness it, being in touch with reality is just that the probability of being in touch with reality at all essentially goes to goes to zero in competition with fitness over, over uh, enough iteration, iterations of gameplay so well, you just, this
0: is a good place to maybe shift topics slightly right. um but that does seem to me like another way of speaking about metaphorical truth that, and in fact, I got into this in a recent podcast with Jim Rutt, where my argument was that, um, color is in effect a sort of, uh, useful fiction. It's not that the wavelengths aren't real, but our categorizing them and painting our, world, our internal world with them in order to figure out where one object starts and another stops, that that mm-hmm. is uh, a highly useful um, falsehood deployed in the interest of our fitness. And that in fact, that's the point. Sometimes the truth helps us with respect to fitness, but where the two diverge, you should expect fitness to dominate. And that, that's true perceptually and it's true uh, cognitively and in every other Way, right. assuming yeah. evolution is, is the explanation.
1: Yeah. I mean, his his argument is that truth is just never a variable. I mean, it, it always washes out, but it's, uh, you know, I, I didn't take that part of the conversation with him very far. I, I mean, it, it makes sense to me if, I mean, the, the the intuition is, well, you need to be more or less in touch with whatever reality at large is, because that would be, that has to be adaptive. Right, because you're in relationship to th- to this thing. So, um, and so it's it, so. Again, it would be a, a kind of a bad edit of reality, but still, some some truth must be getting in. Uh, he's got a more fundamental claim about uh, truth. At the end of the day, just not getting in. Right, we have what we have is a fitness landscape that is select, we have we have built a uh, evolution has built us a user interface that need have no relationship to reality outside the interface apart from conserving fitness and once you once you run those numbers you get you get con- well, in in his fr- framework conscious agents that have no truth value at all to their their beliefs and and you know, they're, you know, the, the icons on the desktop, um, all they have is, you know, fitness, you know, fitness within their, within their regime. And, um, anyway, it's, it's interesting. I mean, my intuitions have kind of slowly migrated in that direction, at least finding that somewhat, you know, plausible, if not, um, convincing, but, uh, it's just, we, you know, we don't know. I mean, this it just comes back to the, the JBS Haldane quote, which, I've I've mangled a few times here, which is the, the idea that reality is not only stranger than we suppose; it's stranger than we can suppose. Queerer, yeah, queer, yeah, right. than we can queer, suppose. Yeah, yep. yeah, the the British version, um, and that is, you know, just based on Darwinian principles that shouldn't be surprising to us. I mean, there's no reason why evolution would have given us intuitions properly formed so as to take the measure of of how strange reality might seem um, in I'm, the end. I'm going to disagree with that slightly. I mean, I, I basically agree, and I have
0: said elsewhere, that you are not built to be right, you're built to be effective, hmm. and that those two depart from each other, but they don't always depart from each other, and I would argue that actually there's a temporal phenomenon where sometimes your useful fictions are much less useful and that it makes sense to step in the direction of an interaction with reality that's more informative in order for you to alter what you think and therefore what you do in a way that enhances fitness. And so I would argue that our capacity to do this is adaptive, and what it means is that our relationship to reality is not arbitrary, nor does it exist at a constant strength, but it shifts based on where we are in in history mm. um, so anyway, it's a sort of middle ground position, I guess but um, but I do think it's interesting how all of these discussions, when you push them far enough, turn into uh, relatives of each other, so you know the free will discussion. Uh, has treaded very close to the religious discussion that we've been uh, involved in in various places, and maybe mm. it would make some sense to to visit that um, before we finish this up. Can I return you to a moment in uh, the debate between you and Jordan Peterson, where I was moderating in mm. Vancouver? There's a moment late on what must have been day one uh, in which you leveled a challenge to Jordan about why a God, as he sees that entity, would give a damn about whether or not you masturbated or uh, would be in any way responsive to prayers that you might offer. And it was a tough spot for me because at that moment I felt like there was a lot to be done between you and me, but it wasn't my debate. With you there, you were there to talk to Jordan, and I was there to keep you guys on track, mm. um, which actually I should just thank you. Uh, it was an honor to be invited to do that.
1: Yeah, well, likewise, you you were great
0: there. Um, but my question is, I think that in that moment, I offered some pushback, as much as I could manage given the context, and said, look, actually, there's a very good reason that a metaphorical God should uh, have an opinion on whether or not you should masturbate. And um, I didn't get around to saying I also think there's a mechanism by which prayers do not require a uh, supernatural entity for them to be sensible in a in a Darwinian uh, sense of the term. And I, I remember our interaction, and I thought I saw a light bulb go on over your
1: head as you got pushback from me on that topic. Do you remember mm, it? No, I don't remember it, so I'd have to either queue up the video, or, or we we can play play out the movie in real time here. Well, um, the uh,
0: the pushback I gave you got lost because, of course, masturbation is so funny that you know there was right. just no way the conversation was going to endure the question. But right. um, the pushback was: look, obviously, masturbation interfaces with motivation about sex. And motivation about sex has everything to do with fitness. And so doesn't it make a great deal of sense that should these religious beliefs be uh, literally false, metaphorically true statements that a deity described in such statements would actually prefer that you not masturbate such that you're oh, motivated yeah. to reproduce?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, no that, uh, I totally accept that. I think what I wouldn't have accepted there is that Jordan, I mean, I, I wouldn't be talking about a metaphorical God because I don't think Jordan was talking about a metaphorical God. I mean, so if, if you're just talking about the, the possible pragmatism of certain doctrines that have been traditionally anchored to what we have every, every reason to believe are false beliefs about deities, well then, yeah, I mean, that's a rationale that, that makes total sense to me.
0: Okay, um, so what I didn't get around to was the, the point about prayer. So let's take the classic, the classic prayer of the, uh, the person kneeling by the side of their bed before going to sleep. Hmm. The person kneeling by the side of the bed before they go to sleep is very likely to focus on things that are um, possible and desirable or likely and undesirable and to be asking their deity to intervene in the likelihood of these things. You know, hmm. please help Uncle Jim get better, or, you know, please help me perform well tomorrow in the recital, or whatever it is. It's interesting that that comes right before the conscious mind goes offline and the brain as a whole remains active and engaged in scenario building and other sorts of activities. My contention, and I can't prove this, although my guess is somebody has proved it, is that your thought process immediately before going to bed has a strong influence over the content of the dreams that you have. And those dreams seem prone to explore problems in your world. Now, it might be that you ask your deity to intervene on things where your ability to use your brain to find a solution is meaningless. You know, if you ask Mm. the deity to intervene in Uncle Jim's cancer, uh, your prayer is unlikely to be answered. On the other hand, if you're praying uh, to not screw up that one move in the recital tomorrow, then it's possible that you end up running through the various things that trip you up. And when you get to the recital, actually, you're more practiced than you realize. Your prayer Mm. might be answered.
1: Right. Well, I, I think there are many reasons why prayer might be good for something that don't entail a God actually listening, um, and that that's just one. But I mean, that's I think it's it's a little. Uh, I mean, obviously, most prayer is not necessarily paired with sleep, right? I mean, the the, the prayer prayer is a tool. Or as an injunction, is not you know in our in our sort of cartoon picture of what it must be like to be religious, we picture people praying before they go to sleep. But in you know just theologically, prayer as a mechanism isn't you know I mean I'm unaware of anyone recommending that you do it at the end of the day as opposed to you know whenever the the fancy strikes or, or you know in, in the morning when you go to when you go to church or whatever. So it's like there's there's um, you can do it at any time of day, and there are many reasons why it could have good consequences for you. I mean, one kind of more basic reason that has nothing to do with, you know, memory or skill consolidation that happens during REM sleep, is it is a time where you are consciously entertaining your most pro-social intentions. With respect to the people in your life, you know, and and even just people, you know, strangers on the street, you're, you're praying for good outcomes for your whole, you know, society or you know, tribe. Um, so it's, it just seems like it's a it's a good moral, you know, pro cooperative algorithm to be running in general, you know, just have have kind of drummed into you. Um, and I mean, it's just it's a it's a kind of a meditation on good intentions. Um, it is, and especially in the context you know of a
0: church service or something where you have people more or less speaking on behalf of a deity, especially when it's a deity who's empowered to reward you or punish you severely, that you know making prayers about prosociality as you put it, um, while in a venue that is constantly reminding you. Uh, of your concerns about falling short of the deity's explan- uh, expectations of you and all of that 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 is bound to actually alter your behavior mm. in ways that I think you and I would agree are often positive um not inherently but you know to the extent that pro sociality is what's being induced um, yeah. then doing so in a context where the rewards and punishments are being you know uh centered so that you are reminded of them. Uh, potentially affects your behavior more than it would if you just picked a random moment to do it.
1: Yeah, and also just, the, I mean, I think the, the biggest lever for that religion is pulling for, from a Darwinian sense is that by appealing to an all-seeing God who will punish you for your transgressions, you are creating a basis for for cooperation to scale among strangers in under conditions in which we know that human justice is going to be imperfect at best, right so it's like you' if if we know that everyone in this game, you know friend or stranger, believes privately that they they really can't get away with anything, that is a is a durable durable basis of of cooperation that doesn't exist if you think as long as no one can see me while i'm doing this thing you know i can get away scot free so knowing that everyone believes that it, it it's, it's a relevant difference you know it's a
0: highly relevant difference yeah. and think about the other little what i would call hacks that go along with that uh, that context so you know you might be calling the priest father right if you and somebody else are calling the priest father that makes you siblings um i think this is not unlike uh, oppressed communities where people call each other brother and sister, that you're bootstrapping a route into kin-selected mm-hmm. modalities that I would not... I'm not arguing for group selection, and you know we don't have time today to talk about that, but uh, there is another mechanism, but simply emphasizing the closeness of relationship is liable to, to increase the degree to which that cooperation happens. Likewise, the... Um, symbols of remembrance for those who have died being present, the belief Mm -hmm. that they are looking down and therefore there's a sort of extra judge of your behavior and whether you're living up to expectations. All of these things point in the same direction of creating an alteration in behavior that is likely to be fitness enhancing, um, by virtue of, uh, strengthening your, um, I'm trying to avoid the word group since it's not what I mean here but trying to, to to strengthen your your lineage or your uh congregation or whatever whatever the entity is. Right. So, okay, that's all that's all good. It sounds like we're on the the same page about that. I guess what I what I want to get at. Do you feel that your position on uh religion is in motion at all? Um
1: uh, no, my my basic position I wouldn't say is just because it's always allowed for multiple things to be true, which which seem incompatible at, at first glance, but you know are easily reconciled and have always been, from my point of view. So the the fact that you can you can you know, this is a point I've always made explicitly. We have to acknowledge that. Religion isn't just one thing. There are many different religions on offer, and they do things differently. Right? They believe different things. There's different consequences to each. Um, you know, th- there are obviously there there similarities, but uh, I mean, religion is a is a very broad concept, like food, right? And you know, not all foods are doing the same thing, and they're not. You know, they're not not all fit for the same occasion, um, and so if you can point to a local instance where some person's life or some community's life was obviously made better by religion, that is not actually a, a point against any argument I've ever made. Right. And so I've always acknowledged that those, you can find those examples. Right. And, uh, So, too, with the flip side of that, you you can find atheists doing terrible things and made miserable by their atheism, or atheists who wish they were religious, right, and can't find that thing that, you know, they know is making life meaningful for their religious brothers and sisters, uh, and they're all depressed and nihilistic, and um, the fact that they don't have religion or something something that would, would do the work of religion is some part of that, uh, that problem for them. Um, again, that's not a rejoinder to anything I've ever said. I mean, my, my, my basic argument is that whatever is good, whatever good can be found in religion is, I've yet to find an important exception to this rule I'll admit that it's possible that there is an exception, but is, is better found some other way Right. So if if you can give me a list of things that that you know moral actions that religion gets people to do, I can find you better reasons to do those things. Right. Okay. Re- reasons that scale better, that are more durable, that will not that will survive contact with our ongoing investigation of the way the universe is scientifically. There's nothing we're going to find out about our brains that'll cancel that'll cancel these good reasons for being moral or going to Africa to to alleviate famine. Whereas the virgin birth of Jesus is a bad reason to do those things, right? Even if it gets, again, undeniable, it gets some number of people to do good things, uh, you know, under the ages of, of crazy beliefs. Um, so, yeah, I don't think—so there's always been what I perceive to be a lot of flexibility in my view because it's, you know, there, again, there's no—you you can point to mountains of good— Done somewhere, sometime for religious reasons, uh, and it's ne- it's never been never never been in contradiction to what I've thought was true. Okay, um, so
0: I want to point you to two things where I think there might be uh, reason to to open it up and check whether or not you still feel the way you <clears> did. <throat> in the moral landscape, you write that you have been confronted with people who make the argument. That because religion is long standing, it must therefore be adaptive. Um, I would make a version of this argument. I believe right. it to be true, and it doesn't quite have enough of the components. So the added component is that long standing religions that carry a heavy cost for those who believe in them must be adaptive, they must pay back that cost plus some in order to persist. And I think in the book, if I remember correctly, you make the argument that a basically a bad bit of code could survive in the world in the form of religious belief. And hmm. my point would be that becomes implausible once you're talking about a feature of essentially every culture, historically speaking, maybe up until the present.
1: Well, let me swap in two things for religion, which I think run through in the same way, which I don't think you'd be tempted to defend by the same logic. The first would be ignorance of science. Ignorance of science is a cultural universal. It's been with us for millennia. Misapprehensions of causality based on an unscientific view of the world. You know, not knowing anything about the germ theory of disease must be doing some good because it's a cultural universal it's been with us for millennia i don't think you'd be tempted to make that argument so that's one so that's like the, the one way of one one thing that is religion for me is it's it's a it's it's a it's another name we put to to ancient ignorance willful yeah so in the, it's, it's becoming increasingly willful in, in the you know as we get more knowledge on board but so i don't think you'd be tempted to make the argument there that scientific ignorance must be doing its work because it's so highly conserved um it's at a certain point it's something we get over and we we never we, we don't look back on nostalgically but probably a better analogy is to uh, witchcraft which is also a cultural universal it's it obviously is very similar to religion in in certain ways um you know, believing in magic spells is a lot like believing in prayer. Um, again, ubiquitous and still survives. In it, It's really just a contingent fact of recent history that it isn't as universal currently as religion is. And if you go to Africa, it's basically universal in Africa, right? So if we were living on planet Africa, magic would be more or less just as much of a going concern as religion is. Um I don't think anyone's saying. Listen, I, I mean, I, I never run into this argument. I mean, someone must be making it somewhere, but no one is coming back at me. You know, in the kind of the Jordan Peterson mode of saying, "Listen, if you think we're going to get rid of witchcraft, you've got another thing coming." Witchcraft is so important, and Europe, you know, European civilization is. You know, you don't get Douglas Murray saying. Listen. We have to be honest with how much witchcraft is an integral part of our, you know, the civilizing impulse and the you know the, the rights of the individual. How could we, how could we think about the rights of the individual without giving Aleister Crowley his due, right? And the irony, of course, is that, that we now find nobody. the New
0: York Times defending witchcraft and yes. advertising right. their interviews with witches in right. the front page. Well, so here's here's I'm I'm glad we did this because. Uh I think it's possible you don't know where I am on this
1: topic. Yeah, I, I might not.
0: Um I am I will defend uh willful ignorance as a product of the same process and belief in witchcraft as a product of the same process. In none of these cases am I defending their continued use. Okay. So w-
1: which which distinguishes you from what Jordan was doing in that would have been doing in that argument or
0: I believe okay. that my sitting between you two was a physical fact and metaphorically put me exactly where I stand hmm. that I'm I am halfway between your two arguments and what that means is and I have to be very careful I'm going to get a lot of pushback on this I know but I do believe that we have no choice but to step back from these metaphorical belief systems in the present, that the predicament we find ourselves in is so dangerous and the incompatibility of these belief systems with each other is such an impediment to navigating our differences that we have to stand down literal belief in that which can't be established uh, for the sake of future generations where I think we end up in a different place is you say, well, there's nothing that we do with those belief systems that we couldn't do better with a rational belief system. And what I would say is that that might be true if we were fully informed. Unfortunately, what we are stuck with is a situation where we can't tolerate having mutually incompatible um, metaphysical belief systems declared off limits from critique by virtue of the fact that they have ancient roots we can't deal with the problems of the modern world in that predicament but to turn off these mechanisms is to invite a whole other set of dangers so while i on balance probably agree with you that we must step in the direction of the rational from the point of view of at least what I would call the common space where we all meet. This is what got me in trouble mm-hmm. on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, was that I was essentially making an argument that where we interact with each other, we need to be in rational headspace and that making appeals to these unprovable uh, metaphorical realms is destructive and dangerous. But in stepping away from that, we don't have a good substitute and the lack of a good substitute means we are certain to do us ourselves all kinds of harm even if ultimately we might have a rational scheme that so well understood the dangers that it could address them what we don't have is anything that has stood the test of time well enough to stand in for these metaphorical belief systems
1: but but nothing needs to stand in for witchcraft we just, need to, we just need to honestly acknowledge our knowledge such as it is and the boundary between it and our ignorance and the problems we're trying to solve. So if, if, if witchcraft traditionally has applied itself to problems like crop failure, which still concern us, uh, and it has invoked as a mechanism something as, as implausible as the evil eye, and something yep. as socially divisive as the evil eye, because you know neighbors murder neighbors over over this apparent crime. Um, when crops fail, uh, and so too with you know illness. You know we don't know where it comes from. We we have a dim sense that you know the 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 old crone across the way uh, could be responsible because we have reasons why we we find her uh, unattractive. I have never anyway. liked her. Yeah, and so. We're gonna blame her for not only the weather and and uh, the resultant crop failure, but uh, you know, the the death of our kids. Um, again, we're functioning in a circumstance where our ignorance is Im- impressive and getting remediated by science and just in you know, a rational conversation in general. And it's pretty clear that process just has to continue. Now I'm not saying it's it's not possible to be unhappy, even while being well informed, right? I mean, there's more to life than just being right or or not being wrong, um, and that's why things like you know meditation and you know e- ethical codes and and uh, just the larger project of living an examined life. I mean, all of that is 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 about more than just understanding science, and and you know scientists are not even you know, you know, as I hang out with scientists, it's not—it's not like they advertise their the depth of their wisdom more than other people tend to, right? I and mean, so this, like, science, science is is a discrete game that you can play or not play, uh, but within its parameters, it's the only game in town, right? And it and it, and, it, and agreed. It, and unlike other games, those the it's. The kind of the the theater of its implications continues to grow and grow in surprising ways and grows and, and never diminishes. right? It's not like we, and this is the, and this is the challenge I I have uh, traditionally uttered to religious people. It's like give me an example of one problem where we used to have a scientific answer. For which now the answer, the best answer on offer, is religious. Whereas, and you know, I number on that list, you know, none, no compelling examples that I can think of. Um, whereas the opposite list is is long and only growing. The the number of things that we for which we used to have a religious answer, you know, a bad one, and now we have a scientific one. And that ground is never going to be seeded again. You know, I mean, again, take the, the the clear case of you know epilepsy in a world where you don't know about epilepsy and you think it's demonic possession, right? Well, once you get a science of neurology, you move from from the, the theological pr- prescription of of exorcism to let's get you some help at the level of the brain, and there is just no scenario where this is going to revert back to to the church unless we find out something else about reality that suddenly requires you know some other mechanism that that, that the church might be able to say oh well that's what we were, we were really talking about like so let's let's just say well, let's take this further and let's say that well it turns out that you know prayer just the, the, that use of attention is so efficacious for certain people in certain ways that, and now we understand it, you know, by reference to the placebo effect or you know some something that that you know at some point of con- offer some point of contact with a, a science of the mind, um, that you know, here is what it's good for, right? You know, that's not what. The, people people were you know recommending in, in in the year 1300 you know in the capitals of Europe when they were burning witches right who didn't exist uh, but maybe there's some remnant from religion that we can prop up at the end of the day and say okay this is this is important uh, or maybe there's some remnant that is actually you know theologically you know, seemingly grandiose like the the sorts of things we were talking about earlier, like if we are a screensaver, you know, we are God's screensaver. Whatever that I means, God is not the, the the sort of God who is the the neurotic who can care about you know whether you've sacrificed a goat or a, or a ram or you know on what day or you know, I mean, none of the Iron Age prescriptions map onto that, but. It's close enough. It's so strange, right? If in fact we have been, you know, created by an alien intelligence and in, in some other context, that it would be open to the religious people of the twenty-second century to say, "Well, that, clearly that's what the Bible must have been getting at, right?" You know, we're the, we're an alien screensaver. That's that's what is you 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 know that's the logos, right? You know, that's the. Um, okay, fine, but that's again, that's not. That's not actually the code anyone was running, you know, uh, that long ago, right? And um, it remains to be seen what reality is at large insofar as we can interact with it. And the process that will get us a better and better picture of that is never to go back and say, listen, witchcraft has been with us for so long, we we tinker with it at our peril we need this you know this paperian process of critique to to continue on all fronts it it, it it needs to happen in science because that is what that's what science is right but it needs to ha- the, 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 the the boundary that has to get broken down is the taboo around doing this on other fronts We need to do this to religion, and the reason why that's so uncomfortable for so many people is because religion doesn't survive those tests well at all, right? And so much of religion is predicated on a a fundamentally different orientation, the orientation of faith, right? I'll tell you what you do with your doubts, you silence them, Not not by a successful process of critique toward better explanations you silence them because you're going to burn in hell for fucking ever if you don't, right? Whether you believe me or not, that's the proposition that 99.9% of people have been confronted with in human history under the, the, the ages of you know one or another religion. And that's the thing we're still trying to recover from. And I don't see any reason to be sentimental about that.
0: Oh, I'm not being sentimental. I'm just simply pointing out We're damned if we do and damned if we don't. And I believe our problems are so novel that this isn't even a close call anymore. But to your point about witchcraft, not hard for me to come up with an evolutionary explanation that's plausible enough for why uh, the crop failure example results in demonizing people and what role that plays. There's no part of me that wishes to defend this practice but to understand why it might have evolved is a different
1: matter. Right, but, so, but why have any more respect for Iron Age religion?
0: Um, why have any more respect for Iron Age religion? First of all, I'm not sure why you go back to the Iron Age. I believe
1: we are talking
0: about... Um,
1: well, if you're, if you're going to be Abrahamic about it, it's, or at least with respect to Judaism and Christianity, you're... You're more or less there
2: mm.
1: because I'm not sure that that's exactly what
0: we're doing. We're talking about um, why tread carefully around structures whose roots go back to the Iron Age.
1: Well, no, no, but specific beliefs, right? Yes. And and like, I mean, the 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 crucial thing for me with respect to any of these religions, the, the thing that the, the only thing that an atheist needs to do to win the argument is to point out that there's no reason to believe that any of these books are anything other than books, right? It's a, it's a textual claim. Again, just now yeah. we're talking about Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Sure. The moment you deal with the books, the, the moment you say there's these books do not bear the slightest sign of omniscient authorship. We, we know too much about how they were authored. Um, the reason they work has nothing
0: to do with the supernatural.
1: Yeah, and what's more, if you just think of how good a book would would be if it were the, the product of omniscience, you know, it just it it, made it just beggars belief that anyone imagines these books were the the, the product of, of omniscience. So, the moment you do that, you have destroyed these religions. There, there, it is. Un, it's an unrecoverable error to to. I mean it is the thing it is the point past which no self-respecting I mean I mean Judaism is a, a slight tweak on this because you know the, the most Jews have lost their religion and just don't want to admit it but the 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 moment you get past this textual claim uh, and you just you reduce these to being books like any other books susceptible to to criticism like any other books um and then you're this is a quick step to admitting that they're not even especially good books on very important topics most of the time, right? And so then you're then you're left finding these, you know, diamonds in the dunghill that are still diamonds. I mean the the you know the golden rule is, is fantastic wherever you find it, and if you find it in, in the New Testament, great. But it is Utterly seditious concession to to force upon religious people that these are just books written by human beings well, but they're not they're not just books uh, well no but no, nor are the books of Shakespeare and uh, nor well, are the plays of Shakespeare and no, Shakespeare, no, as, as far as I know Noah's Ovid no, and no, 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 Ovid and Homer uh, they're all they're all they're well, all pregnant with with metaphor and and uh, you know life application that's what
0: that's not what renders them unbooklike What renders them unbook-like is the process of evolution of what is the content. In other words, you have... Many of these
1: have been set in stone and have
0: resisted evolution. Right. And so the more set in stone they are, the more likely you are to have basically mimetic hitchhikers traveling along with the... And I don't mean good necessarily, but the fitness-enhancing wisdom inside of the things. You, you'll get hitchhikers if the whole thing is frozen in a state. On the other hand, if you have something, let's take Christianity, for example. Christianity, you have lots of debate within Christendom about what to believe and how to apply it and what its implications are and all of that. And those sectarian differences are the uh, mimetic diversity upon which selection acts. So what we find are populations who have a sacred canon that has been um, compared to competitors and found effective. I'm trying not to use normative terms because I don't believe the normative terms are inherently warranted. But again, what I really want us to understand about each other is that Hmm. we are not in the relationship that you typically have with your detractors who say some of the things that I'm saying. I believe that we do have to step in the direction that you're talking about, but that the danger of doing so is actually more substantial than than you or most people give it credit well, for. Well, and so,
1: ironically, I think the danger is magnified by this meme that it is dangerous to let go of the, of the, these tra- traditional structures because what that what that prevents is an honest and creative look at rational alternatives right so because so many you know otherwise secular well educated christians muslims jews hindus buddhists have spent their entire lives telling themselves that there's no other way to get the good stuff that we value because reason is this, you know, this this uh, dry, uh, valueless, you know, c- calculation device. Uh, there's no alternative but to hold on to this tradition, even though we can't justify most of it and we don't want to be pressed on the particulars, even though 90% of what's in these books embarrasses us. We still have to hold these books before all others, and and not think too hard about alternatives. Though there will never be an alternative to the Bible if you're a Christian, there will never be an alternative to the Quran if you're a Muslim. There can't, it's unthinkable, right? And because that's where we're stuck, and we've told it, we've sold ourselves this this story of, of of risk. We, in fact, have made it. Far more difficult to come up with truly modern, you know, deep value conserving structures in our culture. We we don't we don't have a a wisdom culture. We don't have a twenty first century wisdom culture. We've got a a piecemeal, you know, by turns. 500 AD wisdom culture, 500 BC, 500, uh, you know, zero zero AD, and 500, 500 AD wisdom culture or pseudo wisdom culture brought forward into a culture that for for which wisdom isn't even a a variable. Right, and what we need is a truly modern scientifically rationally sound approach to exploring in the, in this domain of all possible experience. So, um, I, so I heard you make a claim in there that
0: I, I, I just wanted to get it, um, on the table so Mm. we can track it. Your claim was that the, basically my position uh, that these things ha- are ancient compendiums of wisdom and that we are in danger by, uh, endangered by confronting them, that that is counterproductive to the objective of getting to a shared rational perspective that would allow us to move wisely forward. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay. I actually think the opposite. Well, is- just imagine if we did that in with... Anything else that was of importance to us, like just technology, like imagine with, you know, if if someone's trying to invent a, you know, a way to fly to the moon, and in in a world where we only have propellers, right? And if what if we had this sense that listen, whatever we do, it's got to be propeller-based, otherwise, you know, we, we will have we will have I mean, we will have falsified all the sacrifices of our ancestors.
0: Yeah, I I get it. And, of course, I would never make that point. I believe Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not even a strong emergentist. I believe the scientific story, to the extent that we can discover it, will ultimately allow us to get the full stack in one coherent explanation. Mm -hmm. We're not there yet, for sure. Um, The question really is... What opens the door? And I believe, and you know, I'm having one hell of an anecdotal run here, but my interaction with people of faith who are in a position to at least listen to what I have to say on this topic is that it is opening a door to considering what a rational shared worldview might be. I don't think it's opening the door very wide, but I do think the door was... Um, closed in a sense by what religious people perceived and sometimes was hostility from the atheist community that caricatured them by not acknowledging that the religion ever had any content, by portraying it as a pathology, inherently a pathology, that
1: um, of course caused a defensiveness. But that's not something, I mean, I've received as much defensiveness as anyone, but that's not something I've ever done because yep, I've, al- I've always been in touch with the experience that you know that is the baby in the bathwater that that you know I, I think peop- anyone should want to conserve and yet I've met the same hostility and and, and the reason uh, there's several reasons for that but one is that most religious people aren't actually mystics or aspiring mystics or contemplatives they're not about becoming like Jesus or like a, right. you know or Meister Eckhart right or you know Saint Seraphim of Sarov I mean they, these are not they're not that's not the game they're playing they're terrified normal neurotic people who are worried about death and suffering so right? it's what, a version of Pascal's wager and I I
0: huh. if, if you'll accept that as a um a label for this point I hmm. do believe part of what we run into is that it is potentially, given the calculus that has been divinely handed down as far as these people are concerned, it is very dangerous to traffic in skepticism. And when somebody comes to you challenging the divinity of Jesus, for example, it's very cheap to fight back. In fact, in the calculus of getting into heaven, probably that counts for a lot. And so I do think there's a distortion in how resistant people are and what I think needs to happen is we need to, both sides of the conversation actually need to move. And I must say, I listened carefully to your podcast with Richard Dawkins Hmm. and I do have the sense that Richard Dawkins is actually in motion on a timescale that's hard to see and that I think you'd you you know you, you did important work with him on your podcast. And actually you can see exactly where it is that he's hung up in this argument where he makes the point that um, he sees the competition between religions something like he sees the competition between species. And he uses the example of squirrels in Europe where uh, n- hmm. a, a New World squirrel drives an Old World squirrel to extinction upon being uh, introduced. But in any case... The slow motion that each of us experience in our position as we are exposed to higher quality versions of what's on the other side is actually, I hope, going to result in us converging where we can do two things. One, we can talk about why it is necessary that we um, at least create a space where we have only the rational and we are not forced to kowtow to... um, unprovable, uh, mystical beliefs. Mm. And, um, the other thing is it would be really important if religious people would start separating between the traditions that they hold dear and the mechanisms that prevent those things from being scrutinized. The very pushback that you and I have received Mm. is turbocharged because What has made it durable over time is a mechanism. It's an immune system that fights that which would challenge some of those beliefs. My point is at this moment in history, we actually have to open up things that may be needed an immune system to prevent them from being opened up in the past. And that means religious people in some sense have to, you know, turn off the burglar alarm on those things so that we can talk about what role they're playing and that that's going to require their participation.
1: Well, it's it's a the thing they naturally do to every other religion too. Yep. It is it's the reason why a Christian doesn't convert to Islam tonight, right? Like just even just the benign neglect. I mean, that's the, that's the way most atheists treat religion most of the time anyway. It's not like atheism is predicated on endlessly criticizing religion or trying to update it or trying to find out what's wrong with it. It's 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 just there's no reason to pay attention to it because it's it's not justified. And that's exactly what every religious person does to every other religion, too. And so it's not—it's it's actually just—it's asking for a coherence in the kind of evidentiary tests you would apply to any belief that didn't get smuggled in with you know, mother's milk to you and— um i mean part of the frustration of it, of you know, that most most atheists feel and you know i certainly feel it on this topic is just f- looking at this all in terms of opportunity costs you know it's like i mean it's, it's almost like well, like well what's the what's the problem with the the trump presidency well one major problem is just sheer opportunity cost it's like, just think of all the good things we're not doing when we're talking about how bad Trump is and trying to figure out how to get him unelected or impeached or, you know, what's just just reacting to him on Twitter. It's like, like as toxic as all that is and all of the bad effects you can easily point to, forget about all that. Just think of all the bandwidth concerns. It's occupies
0: just, a lot of processor yeah, time.
1: Yeah. It's just it's unbelievable. Right. And when you look when you. When you put that lens up to the history of religion, right, it is just grotesque. the amount of of human creativity and ingenuity that has that continues to be lost. Now again, there may be some I'm agnostic as to whether or not there was ever a period in human history where you you might say, actually, it was necessary here, given the given the tools on hand. This was not not only uh, useful; it was, in some ways, optimal. Given we had a, we had a sort of bottleneck to get through, or a, you know a a valley to descend into, to climb out of. But like this is you know this was a necessary course for for the species, or at least the, you know the the groups that have have survived. Uh, maybe that's the case. But now when you, when it, it's just when you think of the fact that. There are kids you know being taught that everything in the Quran is the most important thing you could possibly you know cognize over the course of a human life and you know being terrified with with thoughts of hell uh, lest their attention stray right uh, or and it's and the Mormons are doing it, and the Scientologists are doing it like uh, under every you know you know cultish or 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 uh larger Framework. This is what's happening. Uh, just forget about the the, the the bad effects. Just just in terms of opportunity cost, it's a, it's a it's a tragedy, right? And so, I think every atheist who's not spending any time on any of those errant projects, right, just. It's, they see, they see a whole. Cult. I mean, the other thing that doesn't make a lot of sense here is that when you when you hear the argument of the sort that you just framed, that this is you know, there's real risk here. There's real, uh, we do this at our peril. You know, most people, most of the time, really need this stuff, uh, or have needed this stuff people are almost never talking about themselves. I mean, the conversation is always framed with like, listen, I don't need this. My wife doesn't need it. Our kids aren't going to need it. We're all fine. But listen, you don't understand how people really need this stuff. Well, no, people, mo- most people are, are just like us if given the chance. I mean, I think that's a, a fair operating assumption. No, nobody's oh. kids are going to spontaneously become Jehovah's Witnesses but for some process of indoctrination you know and if they did spontaneously become jehovah's witnesses that would be tantamount tantamount to madness right you would say okay something has gone wrong with your mind if you de novo believe these things right it's only under a process of indoctrination that you can explain the process how uh, the process of a healthy human mind coming to believe those things
0: well i, I agree i just think that the Uh, You know, uh, this is simply a belief that I've arrived at through the trajectory I've been on, but I feel that those of us who have something to say about the importance of dealing in the rational at this point in history, and it's never been more important, um, would be wise to, to clean our house such that we are not guilty of falsely demonizing those on the other side. And I agree, you've been quite careful, but I do think that there is a tendency to view the functionality of religion as the exception rather than it having been the clear uh, fuel of the endeavor until modern times. And that once, once we get there, we are much more hearable to people who we are in the end we need to appeal to and, and let them know actually um, you're not under attack but there is an important problem to be solved and,
1: and... well no they, they are they will be under attack where when it really matters I mean that's just the thing it's like you're not a, you're, everyone's free to believe whatever they want to believe until your beliefs really are an obstacle to some very good important thing happening or, or they're or they're likely to cause some you know, raise our risk of something terrible happening in the meantime. So yeah, no, you know, nothing, it doesn't matter much at all what you believe about vaccines until we invent really important ones, you know, until we have a pandemic that's killing everyone, you know, and, you know, it's it's not, it's, you know, measles plus, you know, okay, I, I can tolerate what you think about measles because, you know, not that many people die from it. It's, it's just a big hassle in the end. But no when when we have this new pandemic that is you know got 75% mortality and uh it it's not it's it, it, there'll be no pretense of being polite in the face of these beliefs it'll be a, a moral emergency because it has to be and this is just sheer contingency as to wh- you know whether we're in one condition or another i mean so that's the that's that's why the only thing that scales is an honest, iterative, self-critical paparian process of fighting toward you know fighting, however dimly we can see through the interface toward a better explanation of Striing, what's going striving on, striving
0: to see more clearly, yeah, and to act on real implications. Yeah. So I really like this this uh, last point of yours um, about uh, the the durability of what emerges here and in some sense I would say we are in agreement that this is the moment to address it because we don't have the situation of the vaccine and it's necessary for public health that people who don't believe in it get it anyway.
1: Well, we, we do have one version of that. I mean, this is why I'm often accused of Islamophobia, right? I, I, th- I think jihadism as a set of ideas just can't... the the gloves have to be off with respect to how bad this set of ideas is, right? So it's like, do you have to pretend to respect Islam as much as you respect Anglicanism or to be as patient with it? No, you really don't, because Islam is too busy respecting jihadism, right? And so like, like we have to ram this through unapologetically, right? And this is where, and, and this politically, this becomes inconvenient, and this is where you know, you get into circumstances where people are critici- criticizing Islam for the wrong reasons because they're actually xenophobes and bigots yep. and you know neo Nazis, and you you want to have nothing to do with those people. But in a space where no one left of center will say an honest word about the differences among religions, you know, this is this is not the time to to be mincing words with what we know to be true. Jihadism is not the same thing as any other strand of mainstream religion now, and it is it is not. The jihadists do not stand to to Islam the way the Branch Davidians stand stood to Christianity, or the Westboro Baptist Church stands to Christianity. I mean, this is just these are false analogies. It's a far bigger problem, as is Islamism. You know, into in which in with with which jihadism is wrapped and so again this is just a this is a place where i think we have to uh i mean i've always acknowledged there's a role for different voices here but i think we are more in the position of you know we've got a pandemic an unacknowledged pandemic and we've got these people who have a a taboo around even talking about the utility of vaccination right and so we have to we 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 have to have the we have to do philosophy on a deadline here you know this is
0: i agree and i think it's an important one i would only uh add that i want to do that analysis when it comes time to it uh in the proper geopolitical context because although i find the analysis compelling that there is something uh, especially frightening in jihadist islam there's also a context in which it caught fire which I think we have to be honest about. But anyway, let's not uh no. Let's not we'll, go down we'll that we'll road. We're going to our
1: fourth hour. W- what? We will we'll be going into our fourth hour no, if we tackle another topic. We
0: can't do that. So, Sam, let me say um this has been a great pleasure and an honor. And um I should say uh often I ask guests where they can find you. Uh my listeners know exactly where they can find you and I will say to them That uh, I signed up for your podcast this morning and um, I suggest they do the same. It actually feels quite good to sign up for your podcast. It feels like uh, a weight off the shoulders and um, it's it's something they should certainly consider.
1: Oh, nice. Nice. Well, let's see how you feel when I start reading you mattress ads after you've (laughs) signed up. (laughs) All right, Sam. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks so much.